0: But we're not here to parse potentially sane ideas. We're here for the crazy shit. So let's take a quick walk back down memory lane to recall when the conspiracists first decided that the deployment of 5G and the sudden appearance of the novel coronavirus happening around the same time was just too much of a coincidence and that therefore somehow the two phenomena must be connected. The question was,
1: how? Especially because the idea that the two of them being correlated made no sense even on its face, so the crazies really had their work cut out for them.
0: Only not really because they don't give a shit if it makes sense. For example, there was the Vogue in late 21 and early 22 for suggesting that anyone who was willing to look beyond the corporate Gates-funded media complex's lies could easily see that the vaccine was causing humans to show up on Bluetooth connection screens of anyone who bothered to open their phone settings and check as this very confident, extremely stupid Twitter video demonstrated by searching for open Bluetooth connections on a flight. I know this audio is just airplane ambiance, because that's all I got for you. In the visuals, he's showing you his iPhone's Bluetooth menu and how it's auto-populating with a bunch of mysterious codes when he leaves it open on his flight. He then has captions noting how this makes it easy to find all the sheeple who took the shot.
1: We need hardly relate to you that this dunce was seeing not some sort of Gates citizen-tracking Bluetooth code, but rather the pairing signals for dozens of encrypted wireless Bluetooth headphones, etc. Right?
0: Yeah, but don't spoil his fun. He thinks he's so smart, and we're so very, very dumb. One far grosser variation of this idea suggested that, in fact, the shots were causing the heads of the vaxxed to explode in Israel, as the first 5G antennas in that country were turned on.
1: Like he said, this one's not just false, but particularly gross. Snopes clarified that it's a lie, paired with reportedly gruesome...
0: That's reportedly, as in, I didn't watch it, and I recommend that you don't either.
1: Footage of Iraqi security forces in 2019 firing supposedly non-lethal gas grenades point-blank into protesters, causing the death of several as the canisters became embedded in heads and bodies. Nothing, obviously, to do with the vaccine. Or 5G. Or Israel. So, like, they only got every aspect wrong. Don't judge the loonies too harshly.
0: So, yeah in addition to whatever bizarro anti-vax bullshit you've heard from your local school board meeting or Trump rally, rest assured, still weirder stuff is out there, and there appears to be, as yet, no bottom to it all. The one to watch, as it were, in this space is the recently announced presidential run of formerly respected Kennedy scion and environmental crusader Robert F. Kennedy Jr. As we noted back in our anti-vax episode…
1: Number 16 in the feed if you want to check it out.
0: Kennedy has long dedicated himself to leveraging poorly supported, shoddy, or outright fraudulent research to oppose life-saving childhood vaccinations, which makes him, in the face of strong competition, the odds-on favorite in the Kennedy clan's competition to besmirch the legacy of John and Robert Sr.
1: The conspiracies about both of those assassinations are covered in our two assassination episodes also in the feed.
0: But now RFK Jr. has set his sights higher. He's running for president against incumbent Joe Biden, and as of this recording, has started off strong in the primary, with 20% of likely Democratic voters saying they would pick him over the current president, probably mostly based on the fact that his last name is Kennedy, and this is a Democratic primary. You remember a few years back when some local or state politician...
1: Sorry, he's having to go on memory for this one, as all previous Kennedy headlines are currently buried under the tide of think pieces about RFK Jr.'s presidential bid...
0: Yeah, anyway, this dude wildly overperformed expectations, and the only reason anyone could figure out to explain that was the fact that although he was unrelated, his last name was Kennedy, and Democratic voters like that name a whole lot. But that's not the biggest issue right now, since RFK Jr. will almost definitely fail to unseat Biden or even spur a debate. But since he's currently cozying up to some pretty hard-right outlets— mostly because more respectable mainstream media, knowing his loop-de-loo anti-vax stance, won't give him the time of day, and also given the fact that he's running on a ticket that, weirdly for a Kennedy, emphasizes free market economics in addition to unscientific vaccine stupidity. And then if you combine all of that with the prominent, equally unhinged place that the supposedly still-alive JFK Jr., RFK Jr.'s first cousin, of course, has in QAnon's Trump-focused fever dreams, There's always the possibility that, as the mainstream becomes ever more hardened against him, Trump could conceivably offer Bobby Jr. a VP spot to boost himself in the general election among Q-nuts, anti-vaxxers, and potentially even uninformed Democrats.
1: Obviously, this is a long, long shot right now, but we live in weird times, and so we owe it to you to keep the possibility in mind. Also, we want to express our sympathy for the brilliant and hilarious Cheryl Hines, Larry David's ex-wife and the invisible curb your enthusiasm, and real-life spouse of the ever-increasingly nutso RFK Jr., whose views she has repeatedly apologized for in recent years. I tell you, ladies, you make it to the top, land yourself a candidate, and look what happens.
0: Moving on from the vax, what are some other smoking ruins of sense and cogent discourse we can disturb your dreams with?
1: You keep telling them that you're going to gently flog your MSNBC listening audience, so you might want to get to that.
0: Yeah, probably so. Okay, it's time for us to talk about the Russia dossier.
1: Is this even Q-related?
0: Well, kinda. But even more so, it's a lens we can use to scrutinize well-meaning people who are trying to interpret facts, and of course, generate the all-powerful ratings that the cable news machine demands, to see how much saner folks than Q adherents have been, to some much milder extent, deranged by the times that we live in. So for that reason, I think it's really important to understand what this was, how it was spun in the mainstream and left-leaning press, and how that approach may have enabled Trump to skate on far more serious subsequent charges.
1: Those more serious charges are the Ukraine scandal, right? The one that led to the first impeachment?
0: I am indeed thinking of that scenario. But it's not just that, Dana. To get started, though, let's go back to the early days after Trump's surprise election. As much of the country celebrated, and as an even larger number of us reeled at the realization that this bizarre, ridiculous thing had actually happened.
2: Now, the Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, (laughs) surreal election we have ever seen.
0: You'll recall in those days that a lot of people immediately branded themselves the resistance to Trump and his incoming administration. And to be fair to them, they did that for a lot of very good reasons. Remember that even before he took power, Trump was already advertising not only his willingness to adopt policies that seemed illegal, inhumane, internationally embarrassing, or in the case of the so-called Muslim ban, all three at the same time, He was also poised to ignore anything that got in his way—state or federal law, well-entrenched institutions, the basic mechanisms of government, common sense, etc. And then we all started hearing rumors about the so-called Steele dossier, that is, an opposition research file commissioned by the 2016 Clinton campaign to find as much dirt as possible on their opponent, Donald John Trump. The word was this dossier had uncovered some very damning, direct connections between Trump world and the Russians. The dossier came about because the Clinton campaign assumed correctly that in addition to the many, many pieces of evidence that were widely available to show what a terrible, dishonest person Trump was,
1: including a wide range of Trump's own pronouncements, both in public when he knew he was on the live mic. When Mexico sends its people,
2: they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some... I assume are good people. And in private, when he presumably didn't. I gotta use some Tic just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet, you just kiss I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy, <laughs> I can do anything. Yeah, in addition to all of
0: the very obvious reasons why Trump would seem like an unconscionable candidate for president, the Clinton campaign wanted more dirt. Remember, at this point, everyone thought Trump running meant Clinton was a shoe in But her campaign knew that she not only faced an uphill battle against societal misogyny, but also that, for the reasons we recently outlined, many Americans had understandably decided that both Hillary Clinton and her former president husband were kind of sleazy, too comfortable around big-money donors, or on some level just not trustworthy or even distasteful.
1: Yes, of course. Trump suffered from exactly the same negatives, plus many others— But enough people found his total shamelessness endearing. Plus, as just noted, societal misogyny. And of course, her chances weren't helped by the fact that she just wasn't a great candidate, prone to notoriously tone-deaf proclamations about deplorable Trump supporters.
0: And that meant many former Obama voters either threw in their lot with Trump or failed to
3: Pokemon go to the polls!
0: Now, to be clear, I, fearful Jesuit, We'll acknowledge here that I voted for Ms. Clinton and am still very comfortable saying that had she been elected instead of Trump, that would have been a far better result for the U.S. and the free world as a whole. But I think it's totally worth noting that Ms. Clinton, as a candidate, had some unique drawbacks. Specifically, a lot of people hate Hillary Clinton the way I hate George W. Bush. That is, out of all proportion with their disagreements with her policies, even among those who might not have as many sexist reservations about women as president many still didn't want that particular woman to be the president. But back to the subject at hand. The Clinton campaign contracted with a company staffed by former investigative journalists called Fusion GPS to dig up the afore-referenced dirt. Fusion reached out to a former MI6 agent.
1: That's the British CIA, the agency that fictionally licenses James Bond to kill.
0: Yeah, though nothing that sexy happens in this story. Anyway. That former British agent was a guy named Christopher Steele, who was happy to start digging into Trump's relations with the Russians. That summer of 2016, hackers published documents that they had obtained from Democratic National Committee email servers, including not only Trump opposition research funded by the Clinton campaign, but also internal research on Secretary Clinton herself.
1: This is standard political operating procedure. You hire people to dig up dirt on your own candidate presuming that whatever your operatives find, your opposition is going to have eventually anyway, and that way you can start developing messaging to counter those stories if and when they make headlines.
0: During this period, it's fair to say that the mainstream media consensus was that Trump was the de facto pro-Putin candidate. A lot of this was based on DJT and his progeny's clear efforts to court Russian influence and favor for various real estate and other business plans they were proposing over the years before Trump began his run for the presidency. This includes his firm's repeated attempts to fund major construction projects in Russia.
1: And the reason he had to turn to Russian-associated individuals and funding sources was because, in general, Western banks and developers had decided that loaning money to any Trump-associated business was a bad idea. Especially given Don's routine practice of forcing everyone who did work for him to threaten legal action before they see one thin dime.
0: And given the amount of poorly traced oligarch extracted money sloshing around the Russian sphere of influence, it makes sense that a person who was notorious for declaring bankruptcy and or failing to pay contractors the amounts owed would eventually find himself required to reach out to, let's say, unconventional or questionable or probably super-duper corrupt funding sources. All of this is standard sleazy international business. The only reason these scenarios are important and complicated is because the sleazy businessman in the middle isn't simply some greaseball from Queens. It's specifically the greaseball who is the now former president of the United
4: States.
2: News Decision Desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, surreal (laughs) election we have ever seen.
0: Turning to the first days of his administration in early 2017, as you might expect, his relationship with the media immediately went sideways. But this is the point where we start relying heavily on a multi-part review of the whole Russiagate affair by veteran investigative reporter Jeff Gerth, which was published in four parts in January of this year by the Columbia Journalism Review, one of the most respected publications in the country. Gerth points out that two of Trump's most overused and popular slogans, fake news and the idea that the press is the enemy of the people, both date back to the first few weeks of his presidency. When a flurry of stories were emerging that connected him with Russia, based on the aforementioned Steele dossier, which in turn relied on what proved to be flawed or debunked information gathered by non-James Bond former MI6 agent Christopher Steele.
5: In
1: other words, in some sense, the very first stories Trump labeled as fake news were… kind of fake?
0: Now, don't lose the thread and think that this is turning into some sort of Trump apologia. Once more with feeling, it is the official stance of the paranoid strain that Trump is a bottomless emotional pit, a narcissistic moron who is also an instinctual genius in the as-it-turns-out horrific skill set of A, convincing older white Americans that they are put upon and that he is their only real defender, and B, that in spite of his multitude of business and personal failings, his political enemies are worse and are coming to steal your gas stove and make your kids transgender.
1: Weird skill set? Yes. Effective skill set? unquestionably
0: very effective. Trump in office, however, proved largely ineffective, with a few exceptions that have quietly become more acceptable on both sides of the aisle than they were when he proposed them. For example, one of Trump's big campaign issues was the undeniable fact that NATO allies were not living up to their treaty obligations in terms of their GDP percentages dedicated to defense. Now, there are a bunch of reasons that the U.S. let this slide for a long time, including the fact that the de facto agreement by these countries to let the U.S. be the unilateral hegemon for the world was worth a certain amount of defense funding fudging for American policymakers in the post-Soviet era.
1: Trump, though, as everyone who pays attention knows by now, sees the entire world as a purely transactional series of negotiations. So if Germany wasn't pumping enough of its GDP into defense, the solution was to threaten to pull out of the NATO alliance until the crowd started pulling their weight.
0: So it turns out that several of Trump's ideas that at the time seemed belligerent have, whether deliberately or through happenstance, turned out to produce positive results. Germany has since 2016 vastly increased its defense spending, though one could argue that's more a response to Russian aggression than anything else. And Biden and the Washington establishment generally support maintaining a number of Trump-era anti-China tariffs and exclusions, though for reasons of national security rather than the reflexive urge to create a trade war that animated Trump. Again. And I can't emphasize this enough. Donald Trump is a cancer on the politics of both the U.S. and the civilized world. But still, we're not willing to ignore some positives that came out of his administration, even if their benefits were accidental.
1: Though it is worth noting that Trump's general skepticism of NATO and the U.S. defense agreements fed into the narrative that suggests that he was doing Putin's bidding.
0: Right. So, back to the Russiagate thing. There were, even early on, various dissenters from the mainstream consensus that Trump was, at best, being manipulated by the Russians, and at worst, a fully paid off Ruski intelligence asset. Masha Gessen, whose excellent book on Putin we covered earlier in our series, thought labeling Trump a Putin agent was deeply flawed. And Matt Taibbi, the combative journalist whose main claim to fame is his characterization of Goldman Sachs as a giant vampire squid during the financial crisis, was dismayed to see his fellow journalists completely abandon the idea of neutral reporting. The CGR piece quotes him thus, saying anything publicly about the story that did not align with the narrative, the repercussions were huge for any of us that did not go there. That's crazy.
1: Yes, we know that many feel that Taibbi has become a sort of crank in recent years and that he was manipulated by Elon Musk in an attempt to make the Twitter file story seem like a bigger deal than it is. But it doesn't matter what you think about those more recent developments. The issue here is that Taibbi was pretty clearly right About the U.S. press jumping on the idea of deep and two-way connection between the Russians and Trump's campaign and administration, and about the news organizations' unwillingness to do any soul searching when it turned out those connections were vastly overstated.
0: And of course, we can't forget that Trump's logoria and showman's instincts, and more broadly his seeming inability to even pretend to give a shit whether what he's saying is true or even sounds insane, led to one of the most memorable and seemingly damning quotes from that entire bizarre election season.
2: Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. If Russia or China or any
1: other country has those emails, I mean, to be honest with you, I'd love to see them. My God, you finally did it. We're talking about her emails.
0: Yeah, sorry, but the CJR article convincingly argues that Trump was in fact doing his showman act for the press at the time of that quote. Remember, this is June of 2016, before his relationship with the press had become completely toxic. And Girth points out that at this point, Trump had no idea that anyone was developing stories that connected him to Russia. Look, assume for a moment that he wasn't in direct contact with the Russians as part of some sort of scheme to land him in the White House as a Putin puppet, which again appears to be the case. If that's true, then, and this is going to be tough, imagine you're in Trump's position vis-a-vis hearing these stories about Russian connections you know aren't true. In that scenario, and given Trump's predilections, it's obvious that candidate Trump would lash out, saying something outrageous, to generate headlines, because that's what's worked for him throughout the entire campaign. Thus, the Russia find her emails line. Again, we keep saying this because we feel like we're going to lose some of you. Given the multitude of ways that Trump kept upending, ignoring, or tearing through norms that the American political world had never even questioned in the past, it was reasonable that horrified journalists and officials would interpret his little joke as anything but a little joke. But trying to watch it in context from this later vantage point and with an open mind, I have to say, I think the reading where Trump is just talking off the top of his head and not specifically and deliberately and genuinely asking the Russians to accomplish something on his behalf is probably fair.
1: Again, this is hard to parse, and Trump is terrible. But still, it doesn't look much like genuine collusion. It looks like Trump being Trump.
0: Now, this CJR article, while comprehensive, isn't perfect. Goethe's revisionist even-handed instincts dramatically understate some obvious facts that support the conventional view of Trump as a gigantic volcano of self-serving misinformation. For example, here's how he describes Trump's war with the press.
1: At its root, was an undeclared war between an entrenched media and a new kind of disruptive presidency with its own hyperbolic version of the truth.
0: Hyperbolic version of the truth here presumably meaning a disregard for the idea of honest communication so global as to suggest a satire on the concept of communication through language.
1: That little rhetorical flourish might sound neat, but you should know it's stolen from a brilliant New York Times review of L. Ron Hubbard's 10-volume Mission Earth series, which Jesuit memorized verbatim decades ago.
0: Great artists steal, unicorn. But Gerth also acknowledges that Trump's own inability to keep his goddamn mouth shut led him to provide off-the-cuff responses to questions about his Russia dealings that naturally then led to headlines painting a darker, more deliberate portrait of his dealings with the Russians than the facts would actually support. Then, for its part, the press played up those misleading suggestions in the moment, and when the implications later proved false, their corrections and follow ups were largely overlooked by both sides and buried in a way that the screaming headlines never were. What the careful reporting of this CJR article seems to support is that many of the most strident voices in the resistance press were all too willing to hype up storylines that turned out simply not to match the facts and evidence. And they did this because they saw Trump as an existential threat to everything they value. In this instance, and this one alone, they would argue, they were justified in tearing up the fair reporting rulebook in order to oppose him. For example, when Trump appeared to accept Putin's denials of interference in the 2016 election over his own intelligence agency's detailed reports.
2: Was asked the question, my people came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said, it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. So I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. Which
0: is a disturbing enough international relations situation on its own. Reporters like MSNBC's Rachel Maddow took it a step too far. At the time, she noted in her blog that her insistence on covering the Trump-Russia scenario so aggressively was now validated because, quote,
1: Americans were now coming to grips with the worst-case scenario that the U.S. president is compromised by a hostile foreign power.
0: I hope it's clear that however simpering Trump could be in his urges to cuddle up with authoritarians like Putin, there was never an indication that he was actually compromised by a hostile foreign power. A Cold Warish phrase that makes it seem as if Putin was Literally calling the shots for US policy through Trump because of the dirt and leverage he had on the former president. I'm sure Vlad would have loved for that to be reality, but it just wasn't the case. Which brings us to the Russian election interference story, closely aligned with, though technically separate from, the Russiagate conflagration. As we all now know, the Russians did what they could to influence the 2016 election, mostly by attempting to spread chaos and gin up strife through targeted ads and posts on social media.
1: This is when your Nana's Facebook started blowing up with stories about Islamic gangs taking over her local cracker barrel, putting it under Sharia law, and replacing the slow-cooked ham with falafel or some shit.
0: In an influential article in January of 2017, the New York Times concluded that the recent Russian efforts were, and we're definitely quoting, "...the most effective foreign interference in an American election in history." Now, we'll leave it to historians to argue the veracity of that statement, but we're wanting to focus on how the Times reporters arrived at that conclusion in the first place. The piece notes that the Internet Research Agency, a Russian troll operation, was able eventually to reach 126 million Americans with its content, nearly the number that it voted in 2016. In the CJR article, experts call bullshit on that figure. That eventual audience the Times is referring to was the potential number of users who might have seen the relevant content over the course of two years, including nine months after the election. The article also notes that the data Facebook submitted to Congress in relation to their follow-up investigations confirmed that half of the impressions for the ads in question transpired during that post-election period, when they couldn't possibly have influenced the election.
1: The House of suck also referred to the IRA's ad targeting as relatively rudimentary and calculated that the total amount spent by the Russian disinformation house on election-related content was about three grand.
0: As Gerth points out, you don't have to trust Facebook to realize that the Russian content operation's impact was far less than many breathless press reports like the Times would have led you to believe. Again, quoting,
1: A study by Danish and American scholars published by the National Academy of Science the following year found no evidence that interaction with the IRA accounts substantially impacted the political attitudes and behaviors of Twitter users. The deep dive by Harvard researchers warned that overstating the impact of Russian information operations helps consolidate the aim of the operations to disorient American political communications.
0: And yet, as of April of last year, a poll found that 47% of voters, 72% of Democrats, believed that the 2016 race was probably tipped by Russian interference, a conclusion that is simply not justified by any available facts. So how did so many people get misinformed about this? Obviously because they're trusted, usually trustworthy, news sources have fed them the sky is falling stories about Russians hacking our elections and installing Donald Trump for years now. That has a real effect.
1: The same, incidentally, is true of the whole Cambridge Analytica fiasco. There was a general panic over that company's supposedly ultra-sophisticated technology, which developed psychological profiles of 87 million Facebook users that would allow individualized custom messaging that could sway the voting behavior of huge swaths of the electorate, threatening the foundations of democracy. Meanwhile, the real story was that Cambridge Analytica, in the hallowed tradition of grifters everywhere, were hyping the shit out of their largely ineffective tech to hoover as many dollars from gullible, ethically challenged political groups as possible before anyone was able to peek behind the curtain and call bullshit on their claims. <laughs>
0: before we move on there are two more voices i'd like you to hear from the first is the controversial taibbi himself on his podcast useful idiots where he and his co-hosts comment on the press's total failure to actually grapple with the indictment of their behavior that the cjr's reporting represents the
6: story by jeff girth yes yes uh, in the columbia journalism Review. Right? Oh, yeah. It's a unique thing in the history of journalism, right? So Jeff Gerth is a longtime New York Times sort of frontline reporter who covered all like the biggest stories in the, you know, the eighties and nineties covered the Clinton white house did all this stuff um, as credential as a reporter gets drops a 20,000 word story in the Columbia journalism review fights for it for years, works on it for years. That book length treatment is just a catalog of errors and it's full of on the record comments by people like Bob Woodward, who talks about going into the New York Post newsroom and the Washington Post newsroom and warning people away from the Steele dossier stories and having everybody just tune them out. There's one thing like that after the other and the entire business is freezing them out. As we, as we record this, it's like two days afterward. And has anybody picked it up? No, Nobody in media has picked up, even has done even a 30 second segment, about 20,000 words in the Columbia Journalism Review, which just, I mean, it's un, it's, it's incredible.
0: And okay, as I previously noted, some folks think Taibis lost a step or even lost the plot when it comes to reporting in the modern era. So let's get a more solidly mainstream discussion from a recent episode of the excellent daily podcast The Gist, in which host Mike Pesca interviews David Isakoff, longtime investigative reporter now with Yahoo News, an expert on the whole Russiagate kerfuffle, who was actually quoted in that big Columbia Journalism Review article I keep harping on.
1: This is your new plan instead of actually interviewing experts? You're just playing segments of more popular shows?
0: No, I'm not planning to recycle other people's interviews in the future. It just so happened that Mike Pesca, one of my favorite interviewers, had the perfect person, David Isakoff, on his show to discuss precisely the thing that I was about to talk about, and their exchange reinforced pretty much all of the conclusions that I had come to on my own. So I figured, let Pesca do a little of my heavy lifting for once. Also, all of you should subscribe to The Gist. Seriously. First, Isakov reminds us that there was a lot of good reason for the FBI to launch their investigation in the first place, contra what you may be hearing from Republicans these days.
7: There were lots of reasons to be quite suspicious about not just uh, what the Russians were doing but about um potential uh connections uh between uh people in the Kremlin and people uh close to Donald Trump and indeed Donald Trump himself he tried was trying to do business in Russia while he was running for president, something that was not disclosed to the public. He praised Vladimir Putin, seemed to ignore many of the um, legitimate issues that uh, the West has with uh, Putin. There were people in his campaign, in his orbit, Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, who had had um, relations with various people in Russia. There was a lot of reason Mm -hmm. for the FBI to investigate
0: However, as Pesca points out, there's been a real unacknowledged shift in what supporters of the Trump-Russia story have claimed that it proves since it first gained prominence.
4: The Russians interfered, but there has been some goalpost moving among yes. members of the media, among elected officials. And the goalpost used to be Russians interfered with the help and assistance, or maybe even at the behest of Donald Trump. And close members of the Trump coterie. Those goalposts have been moved to somewhere like Russia interfered, this is true, Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, the IRA, stealing the, stealing Wikipedia. Trump knew about it and did nothing about it. But that that's where it moved to. But let us recall that for the length of the investigation and the Mueller report and even afterwards, the strong implication and assertion in many quarters was that Trump himself and those close to him were much more involved than, I think we can say, the facts bear out.
0: Isakoff agrees, noting that leading papers, specifically the Times and Washington Post, have thus far been unwilling to acknowledge the stories we discussed earlier that were brought up in the CJR article, those blaring front pages that turned out to be based on false information
7: the media, CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace, they all did shows pumping up the Steele dossier, claiming falsely, wrongly, that it was being corroborated, that more and more information was coming out that corroborates the details in the Steele dossier, when in fact, nothing could have been further from the truth. So what have we
0: learned here? Well, Hopefully, we see that well-intentioned, well-informed, civic-minded people can get caught up in a fervor.
1: In this case, the fervor to see Trump removed from public life and punished for his many crimes, both real and imagined.
0: And it can cause them to over-report stories damaging to their enemies based on thin evidence, and then that same groupthink can prevent a critical re-evaluation of that mania from actually taking hold. It also seems fair to say that the whole idea of fake news and the oppositional relationship of Trump and the press though it may have been inevitable, was kicked off on the back of the Russiagate scandal, which ironically turned out to be one of the few areas where Trump was actually not as guilty as initially supposed. And therefore, the questionable and motivated reporting around this topic probably helped to set the stage for the fact-rejecting do-your-own-research mentality that defined QAnon, which developed soon after the Russiagate phenomenon began. Of course, this misreporting and unwillingness to acknowledge mistakes is a far cry from the slack-jawed insanity of QAnon, But you can at least recognize some of Q's tribal and reality-evading DNA in the mainstream silence on this topic. Why am I spending so much time on this? It's at least partially because I think that when the responsible adults in the room, who are supposed to keep us on track while Trump continues to function on our body politic-like in a memorable John Mulaney phrase,
8: This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse
9: loose in a hospital.
0: When those cooler heads prove themselves to be as excitable as QAnon believers and is apt to hang on to a story that has largely been proved false, and when the press is unwilling to acknowledge and examine its mistakes, it makes everything that's already bad worse. And it makes reasonable people wonder if they can actually trust many generally trustworthy and responsible outlets. Recent history offers us a counterfactual for this scenario. Remember when Times reporter Judith Miller, among many others, ended up essentially accepting Bush administration claims about WMDs in Iraq as if they were true and failed to do enough fact-checking in the days before the Iraq war, to the point that completely fabricated quote-unquote intelligence handpicked by Cheney and company was plastered on headlines announcing that in spite of the best intelligence available, Iraq did indeed have weapons of mass destruction and thus it helped to justify the invasion? Well, I remember it, because I'm old. I also remember that in the ensuing years, the Times and many other publications did autopsies of that coverage, acknowledged their mistakes, and used what they had learned to put in policies and procedures to help them avoid making the same errors in the future. But this time, they're not doing any of that. And I get it. It's because it's Trump, and they think he's a unique and ongoing threat. But they're making a mistake, and they need to come clean. And all of us who bought into this story too heavily at the time, I'm including myself in that number, need to be more cautious about believing stories that verify our existing prejudices. It's not like your favorite podcaster is the only one who thinks this is a real problem. In the second part of the same interview, host Pesca asks David Isakoff why he thinks the media hasn't acknowledged RussiaGate mistakes. Spoiler alert, Mr. Isakoff agrees with me.
4: Why doesn't the media acknowledge that there were major mistakes made in the characterization of the Steele dossier?
7: Um, well, I mean, number one, none of us like to admit we're wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, none of us like to, you know, fess up when, you know, corrections are needed. But, you know, that's what editors are for. That's what, you know, supervisors are for uh, to ensure those sorts of things happen. But, you know, more broadly, I mean, it's a reflection of our tribalized, you know, um, political environment today where yeah you're either one camp or the other and um, you know the, it's all about you know hurling spitballs at each other on Twitter and on cable TV. And, you know, that is not an environment or culture that allows for nuance and reflection and for, um, you know, sober looking back. And, um, we are captive of our narratives, um, far too much. And, um, Look, I mean, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time, as you point out, and you know, I, the, you know, the surest way uh, to the front page of the Washington Post when I worked there, or the cover of Newsweek when I worked there, or NBC Nightly News when I worked there, was I, I come up with a story that fits a preconceived narrative. That's what people already believe. Except you've got new evidence that show what people believe is. True is even more true, right? So that's, yeah. that's the easiest way to get
4: on the front page. Yeah, I do think that the people who run many of these uh, media outlets at least like to see themselves, uh, and it's an honestly held belief that they wouldn't do that and they're fair brokers. But I think we've, to some extent, gone from being driven by facts to being driven by truth. And so we think the truth or the media thinks the truth is that Donald Trump is a threat and Donald Trump is a liar and he actually lied about even things that he was innocent about. And so therefore, if you're serving the truth, um, that's one thing. If there are facts that maybe contradict the truth, well, default to what you think the truth is, which is something like, as I said, Donald Trump Trump can't be trusted in any of this. Right. But back to what we've learned,
0: we can use this story to help remind ourselves the next time some horrific Trump centric story comes up, whether it's Q related or not. When you hear about these things, it's always a mugs game to try to ascribe higher level, sinister, carefully constructed motives to the scenario. Trump isn't secretly an anti-American super spy or hoping to hand Putin the keys to the country or a 3D chess master outmaneuvering his opponents always four steps ahead in his plan to turn the free world into a fascist state. No, he's a wildly incompetent grifter with incredible baseline political instincts for reaching resentful people. Coupled with a bottomless pit of narcissistic self-regard, And he's surrounded with other grifting narcissists who have sewn their fortunes to his rapidly fraying coattails with gold-plated thread. And every single thing they do, and every crime they commit, is invariably either about making money or naked self-aggrandizement. The mistake of the Steele dossier and Russiagate wasn't in wrongly assuming Trump was corrupt enough to do the bidding of Russia. It was that he would be competent enough and energetic enough, and that Putin could trust him enough to actually perform that role. But he's not. And it's so much easier to understand all of this if you just look at it through the twin lenses of narcissism and greed. As Izakoff points out, former Trump campaign chairman Manafort, he had some very shady, very questionable dealings with obviously criminal figures in Eastern Europe. But again, the explanation is banal.
7: Yes, there was like major charges successfully brought against Paul Manafort, but you know, they largely had to do with payments from, you know, the pro-Russian government in Ukraine and acting as a foreign agent for that, not so much with any direct dealings with people in the Kremlin. Now, one of the reasons I thought that the FBI had good reason to investigate Manafort during this period, is um, he was in hock to uh, Oleg Deripaska. He was in hock to a leading guy (laughs) very close to Vladimir Putin. That's a potential compromise right there. And, you know, you go back to what people, um, uh, what the Senate Intelligence Committee concluded about Manafort's uh, sharing of polling data With um, uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, um, a guy assessed to be uh, part of Russian intelligence, Um, and the most logical explanation for that was not that he was trying to help the uh, uh, Internet Research Agency in its targeting of uh, social media ads, but he was trying to suck up to oligarchs in the uh, in Ukraine and possibly Deripaska himself by feeding them some stuff so he can get some business after he um, uh, left the, um, the Trump campaign, which he did yeah. in August of that year when he was fired.
0: Use this lens to look at Trump's firing of FBI Director Comey, the move that essentially triggered this whole mess, and you can see it more clearly. It appears now that Trump actually knew he wasn't guilty of this shit and that the Russia Steele dossier story just wasn't true. But he couldn't convince anyone of this because he lies every time he breathes. So he did what any reactive narcissist baby would do, He fired the FBI director because he was unable to consider the consequences beyond his current fit of pique. And he couldn't fathom that this would make him look guilty for the one goddamn thing he actually wasn't guilty of.
10: Holy shit, we live in weird times. Dana? It's, uh, it's your line. Dana?
0: Is this the kind of performance I'm not paying you for? This is ridiculous. I'm going to call your agent, and we're going to have words. Wait, I just remembered you don't have an agent. Have you abandoned me? Gone out for smokes and disappeared like a deadbeat dad? What happened? Where's Dana?
10: Dana is a bigger son we read sentences, but not with the same, though, sickness or European emphasis. Not to sound Ominous but this is not a genesis.
11: Uh, frightened? I'm Dana Unicorn's cousin, Elena Pegasus.
0: Uh, that's fearful. And nice to meet you, I guess. But why are you here, and what have you done with Dana?
11: Oh, it turns out Cousin Dana forgot to mention that everyone in Europe goes on holiday for the entire month of August, and she already left on hers before you sent her this set of lines.
0: She's gone for a month? How am I supposed to put out the next couple of shows?
11: That's where I come in. Because I'm not just an American, but an American from the South. I don't get nearly enough vacation to nope out for a whole month. So she asked me if I could stand in for a couple of episodes until she gets back.
0: Oh, I get it. This is one of them Dukes of Hazard situations.
11: What do you mean?
0: As all of us geezers know, there was a pay dispute with the original Duke boys, Bo and Luke and while they were refusing to appear until their contracts were resolved in Season 5, the producers recast the roles with a pair of blonde and brunette lookalikes named Coy and Vance, who simply performed the already-written scripts with name replacements. The audience hated them, though, and demanded the return of the original cast.
11: Oh, it sounds like someone's a little cranky about last-minute changes. Do you need a little nap? Something to calm yourself down before we proceed? Should I call your attendant?
0: No, I think I'm okay. As long as you do the Dana- Sorry. The Elena lines. Properly. Wow, that sounds weird.
11: I've learned at the knee of the master. The mistress? Whatever. And remember, it's only for a little while.
0: Straniacs, I fear even a temporary change as much as any of you do. But Dana's coming back soon, and this lady seems nice. So let's welcome and thank her for stepping into the breach. ¶¶ Before we finally stop talking about Russiagate, I need to convey a theory that has bothered me for years. This one's not something I've heard a lot of other people weigh in on, but my gut tells me there's something to it, so take that as you will. As Dana and I discussed earlier, I think there's an argument to be made that by overplaying the Russiagate Mueller scenario, the anti Trump forces, as broadly construed, may actually have contributed to Trump's skating on other horrific shit he definitely did. Most importantly, the Ukraine phone call, where he basically tried to hold the congressionally approved transfer of arms to that country hostage. If you've followed Trump, you'll recall this communication as the perfect phone call.
2: It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. If you take a look at that call, it was perfect. You folks were saying such lies, such horrible things about a call that was so innocent and so nice.
0: Think back to those days after the initial flurry of reports and understandably horrified reactions by reasonable people across the U.S. and the globe, and once the Democrats finally put together their first impeachment trial, broad public support for removing Trump from office just never got over the threshold that might have caused at least a few Republicans to waver on whether or not to kick that motherfucker out. And I strongly believe that the reason for that is what I might call Mueller fatigue.
11: That is... If that whole scenario you lefty screamed about for two years ended in a wet fart, why should we, the not-politically-involved or motivated median voters of America, believe you now when you insist this Ukraine thing is an even bigger deal?
0: Remember, most people don't pay much attention to politics. Even those political scenarios that you might, for excellent reasons, think are a threat to the entire concept of the functioning of a democracy. They really don't. So when you make a big stink about a thing that turns out not to be nearly as much of a scandal as you implied, people are going to boy who cried wolf you the next time you try to convince them that another scenario is even more super serious.
11: Fortunately for us fans of equal justice under the law, the ever-expanding number of indictments of Trump happening at municipal, state, and federal levels are rekindling the spark of hope that he might, at some point actually see consequences for his lifetime of grifting and malfeasance.
0: Now, it's always possible that he will somehow skate on those charges, or, even worse, once again defy the odds, which are even longer this time, and actually win the presidency in 2024, thus potentially sparking a major constitutional crisis if and when he's both elected and convicted in one or more of these cases. Until next year, it appears we're in something of a waiting game, not only to see what Trump's fate is, but also to see what the QAnons do in reaction. And back to QAnon, the nominal focus of this whole series. One of the best pieces of news that has come out over the past few years is that in the wake of Trump's loss, Q's cultural relevance has appeared to decline. A quick check of the trend line in Google searches shows that since its maximum search popularity in, oh, surprise, surprise, January of 2021.
11: Hmm, I wonder what news event could possibly have driven that interest.
0: It's a mystery. Anyway, searches for QAnon are down to about 10% of their level two years ago, which is most likely a sign that, however many hardcore adherents remain, and there seem to be plenty in one form or another, which we'll get to in a moment, but the mind virus that spreads QAnon is at least somewhat on the retreat. As one USA Today report put it on the second anniversary of the Capitol riots, quote,
11: With its figurehead Trump out of office increasingly shunned by Washington and facing multiple investigations, QAnon has largely shrunk back into the dark corners of the internet whence it came.
0: However, its declining relevance in the U.S.,
11: at least as a separate and distinct movement, we'll see how it's mutating and influencing other extremist movements in new and hideous ways a little later.
0: Yes, while it may be subsiding domestically, our international listeners, along with some other disturbing news reports, have clarified to us that QAnon's non-U.S. relevance is only picking up steam if you think about it, this makes sense. Q is really a cult of Trump in the U.S. Internationally, where Trump isn't a constant factor in other countries' politics, the fact that he's out of office might not have the same depressive effect on Q belief that it has here. Not that Q beliefs make any more sense outside of America than they do inside of it, but we feel the international smorgasbord of crazy provides us a unique opportunity to, for once, feel a little better about how batshit our fellow Americans are by learning that every other country has their own supply of nutters. Let's get one potentially foreign QAnon-related story out of the way immediately. It's a quick excerpt from a QAnon-focused podcast that I'm gonna bring up again later. I thought it was worth it to point out this particular moment in that show, as the host and his researcher react to the suggestion that perhaps, and I really think this is the last bit of Russia-related stuff in this series, maybe it's the case that QAnon was actually a PSYOP created by the Russians.
11: I mean, it does sound like the kind of thing they would like to do, drive part of the population mad by suggesting their fellow Americans are the real enemies, and thereby perhaps convince some hardcore Trumpies that the Russians are, by the rules of QAnon, and opposite day, actually the good guys.
0: I hope our earlier discussion of the information madhouse that is Putin's Russia and its very real attempts to spread disinformation, confusion, and hatred, both domestically and to its enemies abroad, will reassure you that we're not looking to let them off the hook for this, even if we spent some time a few minutes ago downplaying the effectiveness of Russia's election rat-fucking efforts in 2016 and 2020. After looking into it, though, we agree with Nikki Wolf, host of the Finding Q podcast, and with his researcher, Eva.
3: To simplify it, this theory kind of claims that QAnon was created as an ARG or an alternate reality game and that it was then controlled by Russia as a psychological operation or a PSYOP against the US, right? And an ARG is essentially a game that kind of incorporates elements of the the real world into the gaming world. It kind of, you know, blurs the lines between reality and gaming, I suppose.
12: Aoife, though, is as sceptical as I am.
3: I would say that the the Russia theory is actually somewhat of a conspiracy theory itself because... Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, there there is a bit of evidence that... um, that Russia was, you know, controlling Twitter accounts that were pushing QAnon hashtags in the very early days. But, I mean, I think that impact is massively overestimated by some people as well. And, like, like, do I think Russia, like, jumped in once they saw it was a
12: thing and, like, signal boosted it? Sure, like, they probably basically do with everything. But, like... Did that have a meaningful effect on its spread, probably
3: not? No, I don't think so. So like, yeah, most of the evidence that I've seen of like the Russia theory is pretty circumstantial. I I haven't seen anything that gives it much credibility, to be honest. And I also have like an issue with this as well, because I think that simplifying QAnon as a Russian-controlled psyop, yeah, it's just like, it lets people wash their hands of it in some ways and go like, oh, it was Russia, you know? Whereas this is like an American phenomenon, right? Exactly. It is a homegrown U.S. cult.
0: So one thing we really can't blame the Russians for is QAnon. That's our fault. Mea culpa. But now let's turn our attention to one Q-adjacent movement that actually migrated, at least in mitigated form, from our neighbor to the north into the USA. I'm speaking, of course, of the Canadian trucker convoy that so dominated the news in the first months of 2022, and which listener Joe Chambly reminded us to include when we asked folks on Facebook for topic ideas. In case you somehow missed it, a group of truckers pulled into Ottawa in early 2022 and parked their rigs in the middle of streets, making them impassable, and drawing attention to the main subject of their protest, their demand for an end to Canada's vaccine mandates, especially as they related to truck drivers. This event inspired other convoys, including one that made a lot of noise as it headed across the U.S. to its eventual target, snarling traffic in D.C. to protest U.S. COVID mandates and to promote other MAGA-related ideas. These ideas include the utterly brilliant comedy phenomenon Let's Go Brandon, which I'm sure all of you already heard about, and which is trying to claim the crown as the dumbest political slogan in U.S. history, defeating such worthy contenders as Tippecanoe and Tyler Too, Win, Whip Inflation Now, and I Like Ike. See, the idea is that many, many people want to open their windows and yell Patty Chayefsky Network-style one hot-button phrase.
11: That phrase being, of course... Fuck Joe Biden.
0: But the problem is, the social justice warriors and speech police won't let you say fuck Joe Biden in public anymore. It's impossible. You just can't hear anyone express that kind of sentiment anywhere in what used to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Okay, maybe sometimes flinty patriots like the entire crowd at a Ted Nugent concert are brave enough to express this idea quite loudly through a huge PA with no repercussions whatsoever. But literally no one else in the rest of the U.S., nay, the world, is allowed to express this sentiment because they're so intimidated by the thought cops or something. Luckily, MAGA Nation put its brightest minds to the problem, and they quickly came up with the seemingly innocuous phrase, Let's go, Brandon.
11: Wait, how is that connected to fuck Joe Biden?
0: Well, I mean, it has the same number of syllables, Elena. So... So, uttering this phrase, or even better, emblazoning it on a huge flag you can fly off your lifted pickup, makes it easy for other cool Trump-loving folks who are in the know to see that you're one of those awesome, with-it people who understand this very complex underground cipher, which is so rare you only see it plastered on, let's say, 98% of the vehicles at any given NASCAR event, for example.
11: But why don't they just say, fuck Joe Biden? Like, as a disappointed lefty, I'll say it right now. Fuck Joe Biden. Get out there and fight. Or, even better, let a woman give it a shot, huh? I hear Dana Unicorn is available.
0: If there weren't a number of problems with that proposal, including her lack of interest, the fact that she doesn't live here, and her constitutional ineligibility, I'd be the first in line to vote for President Unicorn. But your comment points out a glaring hole in this whole idea. Left-wingers have been flummoxed, trying to understand what the hell this whole talking in code thing is supposed to accomplish. I guess maybe you can send your kids to school in Let's Go Brandon t-shirts? So, that's a win. This whole thing reminds me of a brief period where a bunch of friends and I came up with a very sophisticated code in sixth grade, where the rule was that you spelled out each word but said on after the sound of each consonant, and used a ch sound for c. Vowels were pronounced with the letter name. So fearful would be fon ea ron fon yu Why did we do this stupid thing? So that we could curse in class, obviously. A few days into this phenomenon, after one too many kids announced fon yu chan kan yano o yu at one of the other 12-year-olds, our teacher clearly replied, please stop using the code, and we realized we weren't nearly as clever as we thought we were. This idea has yet to occur to Let's Go Brandon fans. Satisfied to keep thinking they're still owning the libs with this clever wordplay. It's like that apocryphal story about early Christians tracing a fish symbol in the dirt to recognize each other during times of Roman repression, except for self satisfied dickheads.
11: Wow, Cousin Dana was right. You are one digressive motherfucker. Oh, great.
0: None of the Dana, all of the critique. Oh, Where was I? Oh, yeah, even the mighty power of their Let's Go Brandon flags didn't help the DC trucker protest live up to the hype. But the Canadian version managed to bring large sections of Ottawa's downtown to something of a standstill for two weeks, until a questionable invoking of an emergency powers statute allowed PM Justin Trudeau to order the Mounties and a fleet of tow trucks to clear them out. Now, as is the case with pretty much any lunatic protest, Trump rally, or other nonsense friendly event, there was plenty of QAnon-related stuff to be found in this protest movement. Of course, QNuts have been very active in COVID, mask, lockdown, and vaccine conspiracies since 2020, and so Q was certainly present in the Canadian trucker convoy with its very welcoming stance on virus-related misinformation. Overall, though, I don't think the Q-ness of the protest was really that strong. As Vice noted in a February 2022 article, there are deep Q-related links in the origins of the convoy, specifically through its founder.
11: The Freedom Convoy started as a loosely affiliated group of Canadian truck drivers led by a group called Canada Unity, founded by far-right activist and QAnon conspiracy theorist James Bowder, who has managed to build a coalition of fed-up truck drivers, fringe Canadian political party members, neo-Nazis, anti-vaxxers, and an international coterie of scammers, grifters, and low-level online creators... That has been able to generate major headlines around the world.
0: So the founder was heavy into Q, but the protest itself doesn't seem to have been dominated by Q-derived philosophy. So I think we're going to move on from this one to some other Canadian Q insanity. In fact, it's some of the purest, uncut Colombian flake crack pottery this podcaster has ever seen. I'm talking, of course, about the Queen of Canada. Oh, Canada.
11: you're confused, since Queen Elizabeth died, the monarch in Canada is a king, specifically King Charles III, the guy who until recently we all referred to as Prince Charles, the homeopathy enthusiast with the giant ears who stood behind his mother for like seven decades before he got his chance to sit in the big chair.
9: Oh, no, I'm
0: not confused, though until I was about to start writing this section. I had forgotten that technically Canada, like other non-U.S. previously British colonies actually recognizes the House of Windsor as their nominal, though politically powerless, head of state. Which, to American ears, is super weird.
11: You really going to cast political aspersions there, Mr. Afraid?
0: Fearful. And no, I think the last seven years have quelled any urge I had to chortle at other countries' governmental foibles. Without engaging directly with the question of whether or not hereditary monarchy is very silly in the 21st century, which isn't really a question, because duh.
11: That's not? Chortling.
0: Even if you accept some of the more popular monarchic claims that still litter the earth. The British royals, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia.
13: Maeve Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Romano
0: de Dulo, the queen of Canada, is still a pretty tough sell.
11: Okay, I'll bite. How did she become the queen of Canada? According to her, I mean.
0: It's a story as old as time.
8: The lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. (sighs) Come
11: on, Jesuit.
0: You object? Perhaps you think that...
2: Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords, is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses,
12: not from some farcical aquatic ceremony.
11: Eighth grade Jesuit is super jazzed about these python clips, isn't he?
0: As excited as any non-boob-related topic could possibly have made him, Elena. Seriously, though, Ms. DeDulo got her title from a super-legit source. None other than the King of America.
11: Dwayne the Rock Johnson?
0: No. David J. Carlson, silly. Actually, on the internet at large, there are disagreements about who anointed whom, with Reddit insisting that the Queen appointed this upstart AmeriKing But I'm going to go with the honest-to-God research paper I found on Queen Didulo, written by Dr. Christine M. Sarteshi of Chatham University and published in the International Journal of Coercion, Abuse, and Manipulation.
11: Oh, of course. I never miss an issue.
0: The tale of how she came to be queen is breathtaking. So we're going to quote a lot of it here. Elena, please do the honors.
11: The story is as follows. Didulo had been living with a roommate in Victoria, British Columbia, That night, and after working her day job, Didyla was secretly interacting with a man she would later reveal as His Highness David J. Carlson, who was acting in the role of Commander-in-Chief of the United States Air Force Academy Civilian Command of Military Operations. David Carlson is also referred to as Commander-in-Chief of the United States and King, David Carlson supposedly appointed Didylo in 2017 after her harrowing mission against the Chinese Communist military who were allegedly occupying Canada in underground tunnels planning to attack the United States. These tunnels were also used for adrenochrome production, organ harvesting, manufacturing, and for adult sex and child trafficking. Didylo asserts that she single-handedly removed the Chinese Communist military from Canada, and additionally, the remainder of the world. She contends that her subterranean military achievements prevented World War III. For that, Didylo was awarded her title as queen. The entire world, she explains, should be thanking her for her monumental efforts.
10: Oh,
0: shit. Did I forget to wish everyone a happy ending the Chinese-Canadian tunnel plot day again? It's such an important holiday, but it always sneaks up on me. As we can see, the Queen is a few rubies short of a crown, if you get what I'm saying. Before we go further, I have to paint a mental picture of her sheer, intimidating physical presence and majesty, so you can keep it in mind as we discuss her many fascinating beliefs and actions. For those of you who are Always Sunny in Philadelphia fans, describing her as a layup, she looks eerily like a Filipino version of Max, chain-smoking monosyllabic mom. Uh. <laughs> for the rest of you, Romano Dadulo is a slight, gray-haired lady with a very nondescript face and a penchant for appearing in posters and other promotional materials in awkward Stalin-meets-Kim Jong-il-style revolutionary military wear. Her expression alternates between serious and dour, but I think this is actually a strength. The fact that she can maintain a very straight face while declaring her nonsense may actually help convince her followers to go along with her bullshit. Let's check out her electrifying speaking style in this clip from her official YouTube channel, where she explains that the Canadian convoy truckers we previously mentioned were being arrested only because they kept protesting after the Queen had already declared all COVID mandates over. So, really, They have only themselves to blame. Also, Justin Trudeau and his government are CGI or something. Anyway, prepare to have your face melted off by her sheer charisma.
14: Greetings, everyone. I address you today as your queen, commander-in-chief, and head of government. This video is going to quickly address the arrests happening in downtown Ottawa. Many of you may have recalled that on February 3rd, 2022, I have lifted all COVID restrictions across Canada, which means all the protests and trucks that were left in downtown Ottawa after February 3rd were and are unlawful. Many have in their mindset that they would They're waiting to drag Trudeau from Parliament Hill. News flash Trudeau's gone a long time ago. You're seeing CGI and actors playing Trudeau. So there's no reason for anyone to be in downtown Ottawa.
0: This academic paper turned out to be a treasure trove, so while I've known I was going to cover this topic for a long time, it turns out I've got a lot more to say on this than I previously thought. Buckle up.
11: First, the royal origins.
0: Little has come to light about the queen's life before she ascended the throne, but we do know that she claims her birthplace, the Philippines, was once the kingdom of Maharlika before it was colonized by the Spanish. You can still find Maharlikan heritage, though, in the richest royal families in the world, who she also weirdly maintains have zero Chinese blood. And it's because she's descended from these ancient, important bloodlines that she has become officially the divine ruler of this planet.
11: So, she crazy.
0: We hate to throw that word around.
11: You love nothing more in the whole world.
0: Fair enough. We will note that she was briefly and involuntarily committed in December of 2021 due to her worrying declarations and activities. Though she now claims that she was just undergoing the same annual physical exam that other world leaders do, and the psych hold was a cover story her PR people came up with. Concerningly, though, she's also a big believer in the Q-slash-MAGA deep state cabal, which has targeted her, bugging her RVs, and constantly keeping her under watch.
11: And she's fame-obsessed?
0: Yes, indeed. The paper discusses her obsession with our old buddy Vlad Putin. How deep is that obsession? She apparently arranged for a photo op where a mysterious figure named Marcus presented her with a watch supposedly gifted to her by everyone's favorite invasion-happy tyrant. She was also appointed by Pooty-poot to mediate between Russia and the US to find a solution to the Ukraine war. You don't have to imagine that declaration. We have more audio from the Royal YouTube channel.
14: To the Russian and American people, I address you as the mediator between the United States and Russia pertaining to Ukraine crises. I must inform the we the people of the Kingdom of Canada that as part of my negotiation with the Commander in Chief of the United States Armed Forces, I have requested that Queen Romana of the Kingdom of Canada be provided an aircraft bearing the flag of the Kingdom of Canada and with the call sign Queen Romana, for short QR1, as we travel to Moscow or St. Petersburg, Russia. In addition to that, I have requested military escort from the United States and Russia to ensure that we the people of the Kingdom of Canada are assured of the safety and protection of their queen. Issue number five from Russia or concerns from Russia is who is the commander in chief of the United States Armed Forces? And I can tell you it is not Joe Biden. So, to the we, the people of the Kingdom of Canada and the world, I am now serving as your peace and prosperity mediator between the United States and Russia, while remaining as the always Queen and Commander-in-Chief of Canada. Phew!
11: It's a real relief that that's all taken care of now.
0: She also claims North Korea's Kim Jong-un places her portrait next to his own in public places, and that she was invited to...
11: Though apparently didn't attend.
0: A state visit to North Korea, where the motorcycle gang Hells Angels were to provide security.
11: Like Altamont.
0: She's also friends with notable journalist dismemberment enthusiast, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, apparently.
11: Okay, so she's very, very important. What about her style of government?
0: For that, we turn to her decrees. Tadulo has been laying down the law in the form of her unquestionable decrees for years now, and she's declared them retroactive to the 19th century founding of Canada, conveniently allowing her subjects to ignore any laws passed by anyone else since that nation was founded. The penalty for crossing her on most of these is execution.
11: Wow, tough on crime.
0: Her biggest declarations to date include nationalizing Canada's resources, rendering all utilities, public transit, and K-through-college education free of charge,
11: Progressive.
0: She's also abolished income tax, which probably makes the other items a little difficult to fund.
11: Libertarian.
0: Unsurprisingly, her various social media are littered with, frankly, heartbreaking messages from people who have tried to get free shit she told them they're entitled to and the various ways they have ended up without utilities, property, vehicles, hounded by creditors, etc. You're not going to believe this, but her explanation for how these stories went wrong is that the followers are doing everything incorrectly, and they must strive harder to ensure their own success in promulgating her decrees. Also, she decreed she renamed Victoria, capital of the province of British Columbia, to Queen Romano City, which has a nice ring to it.
11: So how does she enforce her stern decrees?
0: DiDulo claims that she has authority over every real and imaginary branch of the military, inside and outside of Canada, and can send them out on a whim. In addition to the U.S. military, including Special and Black Ops, she also commands the Earth Defense Military, which as near as I can tell is a group that protects the Earth against giant alien ants in a series of low-rent but super-fun Japanese video games by D3
9: Publisher. Humanoid aliens?
14: Extraterrestrial beings similar to humans.
11: Oh, and video game nerds, yes he knows, it's actually called Earth Defense Force. Shut up.
0: As you might expect, since attempting to follow her edicts so frequently brings them in conflict with actual authorities, her followers often plead that she send one of these militaries to help them with personal matters.
11: Presumably, those include problems involving invading space
12: ants. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality, uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others
13: to toil in their underground sugar caves.
11: What else do we need to know about her? Not
0: much. Just a little something called magic alien superpowers. She contends that the Intergalactic Federation of Worlds of Light Beings, the High Council, and Alliance that's all one concept, are aware that she is, quote, the one leader on Earth with purest intentions to help men, women, and children and animals slash planet Earth, and gave her the exclusive, quote, spiritual contract to help the planet. One of the perks of this position is, of course, superhuman powers. After all, her queenship comes from the, quote, highest dimensions and realms as well as on planet Earth. Also, she alone has been blessed with both DNAX and 10D which each alter her genetic structure, creating unlimited consciousness from the quote, Godmaster Creator. To explain the rest of her powers, we'll just quote the paper directly.
11: She can cloak and uncloak herself. She can freeze or erase the memories of other people. As an individual with the quote highest frequencies, shape shifting is one of her natural abilities, giving Diddy the capacity to become anyone or anything At any time. That includes a, quote, woman, child, a man, or any animal that one has affinity with. Or even a tree or any object.
0: Using these powers, she's arranged for children who are kidnapped and held in underground military bases to be moved off-planet for healing. She's also apparently omniscient, as is fitting for someone who frequently calls herself I Am, The same name Yahweh used when talking to Moses.
2: But if I say to your children that the God of their fathers has sent me, they will ask, what is his name? And how shall I answer them?
10: I am that I am.
2: Thou shalt say, I am, hath sent me on.
0: Proof of omniscience? She has apparently known about her mission since long before she physically manifested on our puny planet.
11: But the main reason we're even hearing about this loon is her COVID shit, right?
0: Definitely. Her popularity really ramped up in August to December of 2021 when she hit 73,000 followers, a number that has since thankfully fallen. That's also probably not coincidentally around the time she started threatening anyone involved in COVID vaccination or mandates. Based on the authority granted to her by the King of America, she was able to stop all vaccinations in Canada immediately. Or more accurately, she wasn't, but she was able to say she did that. As a result of her decrees, Didulo explained this to her followers about university administrators who mandated students get COVID vaccines. Again, quoting,
11: These individuals will be charged with crimes against humanity and sent to a military tribunal where they will be tried and, once convicted, will be hung or executed via firing squad.
0: She went on to declare that, while she wouldn't allow them to have gin and tonics with their final meals, she would allow them a strawberry milkshake. Since then, asking which flavor of milkshake a person prefers is popular code among her followers when joking about those who are on the execution lists. She's got slogans about it, too, offering those who cross her two choices. Number one, cooperate and possibly get the top bunk bed.
11: You know, in prison, where she can totally send people for administering life-saving vaccines.
0: Or option two, lead in the forehead. Hey, bunk bed? Forehead? It rhymes. What a cool lady. I also really hope none of you are a doctor or administrator who refused to prescribe ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine to Canadians. Because if so, you're getting hanged, buddy. But only in Canada. Not at Gitmo.
11: The not at Guantanamo thing seemed really important. Don't want the U.S. stealing her glory when the necks start cracking.
0: These executions are already well underway, with over 2.7 million people having already been taken out by, quote, our Galactic Federation of Worlds of Light Beings. Also, she apparently personally executed Queen Elizabeth.
11: I bet tickets to that cage match were a tough get.
0: The reason this nonsense matters is a group of her followers actually went to a Canadian police station in August of last year to arrest police officers for COVID crimes and hand them over to a military to be named later. Maybe the Earth Defense Force.
11: Protesters showed up Saturday to carry out a quote, citizen's arrest of local officers, and here's how that unfolded.
13: Instead of arresting the cops, Cajulo's the supporters were themselves arrested.
5: You're supposed to
0: defend the people. These are people who are genuinely batty, who are genuinely dangerous, and who are going there uh, tr-
6: trying to provoke a physical confrontation.
4: The Peterborough police will continue to investigate, identify the people involved in the protest on Saturday, and continue to lay charges, if warranted.
3: The Peterborough incident showed the real-world implications of her ideas. They don't just live on telegram. People believe in them. They're acting on them. They are actually changing their lives based on ideas that she believes in. They're probably more a danger to themselves in the sense that they believe in ideas that aren't real, and then they carry them out in their own lives, and it hurts them.
0: Months before, Here's to Dulo explaining this order to her loyal lieutenant, Frank Curtin, who of course was on the scene for this exciting development in the new Canadian era.
14: Well, I will begin uh, live stream here just to okay. let everyone know okay. that I'm here as the Queen and Commander-in-Chief to observe, to make sure whatever process is being done, it's done fairly, and whoever is arrested by the citizens is given respect, dignity, and honor.
10: Yeah.
2: Very
14: huh? good. So that's Very it? Very good. I'm here to make sure it goes over peacefully. Correct, yes. Oh. And uh, I... I have sent a message to the U.S. Commander-in-Chief two days ago letting him know that I'm here and that I'll be here. Right. And that I requested for a backup to make sure Thank
1: you. that this process goes peacefully. Thank you so much.
10: So, you can
14: okay. Very good. Very good. Very, very
1: good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right, Frank. All right. I'm here with you. Okay, great. On behalf of We The People, Uh, the Press Secretary for Her Royal Majesty Queen Romana and uh, I have the great fortune of being in Peterborough, Ontario with Frank and uh, Frank, we're in front of the police station so do you mind uh, sharing with us uh what's going on here right
2: now well uh we're in front of the Peterborough police station um we tried to stop all COVID crimes last year with a cease and desist order on June 6th that was endorsed by U.S. special force <laughs> military um, today uh we've put the police station on notice many times over the last year that warning them to stop and they've continued to participate. We are here today to make a citizen's arrest against the members of the Peterborough Police Department for their involvement in the crimes against humanity. Uh, if you're tired of looking at, watch, or if you're tired of watching the way people are living, you need to stand up, stand with the people, take some time, educate yourself about our new commander in chief of the country, Queen Ramona Divigo. Educate yourself. Don't use Google because Google has already slanted.
0: You're not going to believe this, but this super well thought out plan failed.
11: Kill horror.
0: Sounds better when Dana says it. <laughs> Didulo naturally blamed this failure on her followers somehow once again fucking up her perfect and inviolable decrees. Though of course this doesn't affect the plan. These decrees are of course still in place, milkshakes will be delivered to the guilty, but not gins and tonic, etc.
11: Did you just say gins and tonic? Are you trying to sound like a pedant? Also, am I not supposed to point out your insufferable grammatical snobbery?
0: No, that's actually a key part of the job. Keep it up. Dana would be proud. Her followers have vowed that they'll try again until they get this thing done, with their eventual aim being to arrest the retired local police chief, so good luck with that. Actually, bad luck. Bad luck with that.
11: That was back in 2022. What's she doing lately?
0: The way the paper describes it, she's kind of gone Scientology, with her closest followers convoying across Canada in RVs, each wearing a head-to-toe all-white outfit that represents their status as the white hats that fight the deep state black hats of QAnon lore.
11: It's a lot like Scientology's floating army of uniformed Sea Org lackeys who sign billion-year contracts to serve the legacy of L. Ron Hubbard.
0: She has endeavored to make state visits to other nations, as you might expect for a sovereign of her stature, but thus far her attempts to visit her neighbor to the south have been stymied for reasons that have not been clarified though Dr. Sarteshi dryly notes the reason might be her insistence on using a self-issued, purple-hued passport declaring her citizenship in the Kingdom of Canada.
11: Yeah, that might be the problem.
0: Oh, and a few months ago, she introduced a new—what's the word I'm looking for? Scam? No, you cynical scab. Sorry, that was harsh. You're doing a great job. But this isn't some scam that would be beneath the dignity of the Queen— Her new growth opportunity is called loyalty money. And despite Dr. Sarteshi's best efforts, it's still a little confusing to me. The currency sounds rad looking, though. It's bigger than real money, includes her flag, a sort of purple modified maple leaf split down the middle by a sword, and the highest denomination is 100,000. Well, what would you call these? Not dollars. Um, 100,000 loyalties. And yet, much like Bitcoin, its usefulness as a medium of exchange remains questionable. Didulo assures followers it's backed by hard specie and can be redeemed for value at the national and provincial treasuries of the Kingdom of Canada.
11: Which I'm going to go ahead and assume isn't actually a thing.
0: Not as yet. However, in a weird twist, she seemingly contradicts herself when she also notes that the currency doesn't have any value yet. Her followers themselves must create the value that it will eventually have.
11: What the fuck does that mean?
0: She plans to offer future guidance on that topic, so rest easy. Anyway, if you want some to do low bucks, you just have to go through a ceremony where you declare your sovereignty as a Canadian national, and then you can get fat stacks, as I think the kids are saying these days.
11: Yeah, they are not saying that.
0: I, for one, cannot wait until the Queen's followers start trying to buy groceries with these things. Should be a hoot. So, what are we to make of all this? Well. Thus far, the Queen's actual impact on Canada's cultural life has been limited, with the exception of that attempted arrest of the cops thing. Which we can all admit is really funny, right? Especially since a bunch of them got arrested. But of course, these things have a way of spiraling. And as Dr. Sarteshi's paper concludes, there could be plenty of future downside to this story.
11: Her message is filled with the dictatorial promise of death to anyone who displeases her. Didylo describes herself as the supreme being extant on planet Earth. Didylo believes herself to be beyond question. She claims she possesses supernatural powers, is able to become invisible, change shape, and is an Arcturian from a distant star system. All claimed without a drop of evidence or proof. Didylo's message is not one of benevolence; she promises death. Her edicts daily harm her followers.
0: So yeah. We'll keep an eye on her.
11: So where does our world tour of Q head next, oh great and powerful terrified?
0: Fearful. The name is Fearful. And our next geographical move is a biggie, all the way to the land down under. This story came to us almost entirely from one of the many books we read for this series, titled "Q and On, and On: A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults by Aussie Guardian columnist Van Battam. She has quite a story to tell, specifically about a QAnon figure who, if not actually in power, in the government.
11: As Trump was in the USA, and to a much lesser extent, as Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to be today.
0: Yeah, for the Australians, the QNuts were not actually in the seat of power per se, but they were definitely at the seat of power's table for four at a posh dinner or two. I'll let the author herself introduce the budding scandal.
15: QAnon first arrived in Australia's mainstream political consciousness via a disturbing article published in The Guardian on the 2nd of October 2019. In it, journalists Christopher Naus and Josh Taylor broke a story exposing the relationship between Australia's Conservative Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and a man that the article referred to exclusively by his Twitter handle, at 34 At Burnspy34, they asserted, was married to a close friend of the Prime Minister's wife, Jenny. The relationship between the families was long-standing. The women had been friends since their school days, the couples had attended each other's weddings, and public Facebook messages were open about the connection between them. What disturbed most was that the journalist had identified at Burns by 34 as the author of numerous tweets citing the QAnon conspiracy theory. For a year, this man with a close personal relationship to Australia's Prime Minister had publicly shared content claiming the world was secretly run by a shadowy cabal of pedophiles comprised of the world's elite. At Burns by 34 had publicly suggested at least two of these elite pedophiles were Morrison's own factional rivals.
0: Of course, as an American, I have a deep, extensive knowledge of Australian politics.
11: Meaning...
0: Meaning, I have immersed myself in the bare-knuckle fights and intriguing smoky backroom power plays that have defined the political life of this fascinating land at the end of the world, to the point that I understand not only the players, but the power games they play. Meaning? Meaning, I saw the Australia episode of The Simpsons when I was in college, and at that point decided I pretty much understood all there was to know about Australian culture and politics.
11: That's the one where Bart is supposed to get kicked by a giant boot as punishment for running up a huge collect phone bill, but instead causes an international incident and leaves the country buried under a mountain of invasive Simpson smuggled bullfrogs?
0: It is indeed. And if you'll recall, not only the Australian judiciary, but the Prime Minister himself plays an important role, as in this pivotal scene.
3: You're all the way in Australia. Hey, I think I hear a dingo eating your baby. Yeah, well, well, ooh,
16: oh. Oh,
15: that's it. I'm going to report this to me member of parliament. Hey, Gus, I got
14: something to report to you. That's a bloody outrage it is. I want to take this all the way to the prime minister. Hey, Mr. Prime Minister!
11: Andy!
12: Aye, mate. What's the good word?
11: And this person whom Bart has fooled could be described as a sort of Australian hick.
10: Yeah,
0: that's fair.
11: And this member of parliament he calls by yelling out his window is a neighboring pig farmer?
0: Again, accurate.
11: And the prime minister they go to consult is a naked guy floating in an inner tube in a pond drinking fosters.
0: Australian for beer, yes.
11: And that's all the info you need on Aussie politics.
0: I mean... We're Americans, right? Like, how much else is there to know? Seriously, though, I obviously don't know shit about the politics of the land down under, but I do know that they had a run of pretty conservative prime ministers for a while there, and that Scott Morrison, the one embroiled in this Q-related scandal, was among the most conservative, at least whatever that means in Australian terms. But from what I can tell, this QAnon fan as prime minister bestie thing was an actual honest-to-God big deal.
11: The stuff that Morrison's buddy Tim Stewart was spewing on social media is old news to you straniacs. It's the greatest hits of non-USQ. Heavy on the satanic panic, child rape accusations, secret cabal working against the interests of the Australian people on behalf of the elites, light on the Donald Trump as the returned messiah who not only rules the US but the whole world, etc., etc.,
15: on Twitter, Tim Stewart shared scans of a photocopied decades-old 50-page document titled Satanic Cult Awareness, dating back to the Satanic Panic of the 1980s. This was a conspiracy theory fueled moral panic that insisted organised satanic sexual predators were corrupting children through degrading rituals of sexual abuse and infamously provoked 12,000 accusations in the United States alone, not a single one of which could be substantiated.
0: Yes, and as Van Battam notes, Stewart had no problem even after the scandal broke, waxing rhapsodic on these topics for any TV interviewer who gave him a microphone.
15: The Guardian journalist Nelson Taylor raised this point directly when they interviewed Tim Stewart in 2019. If you want to do your research into the US context, the red shoes are purported to be very much a pedophilia shout-out, Stewart told them. And there are some extremely odd photos of large groups of men in suits wearing red shoes, many of whom are promoting pedophilia. Karen Stewart told ABC TV's Four Corners program how this QAnon belief had been explained to her. If people wear red shoes, they're wearing red so that when babies are slaughtered and the blood falls on the ground, that no one will see the blood spatter.
0: But of course, just as with Kewloons in the U.S. and their god-emperor Trump, Stewart failed to follow his own logic. After all, if your best buddy is the most powerful man in Australia, how well is this supposedly all-powerful cabal functioning?
15: In May 2019, he also fought and won a federal election. He ran a political party, a government, and a cabinet. He was expert in political power and had made himself powerful with that expertise. So how could Tim Stewart persist in QAnon beliefs about a cabal of elites, a deep state and shadow government, when the real state, the real government, was the same guy who drank light ales with him? How does an anonymous internet prophet come to exert more influence over someone's political reality than a prime minister hanging out with you at a Sharks game?
0: It wasn't just Guardian columnists with a bee in their bonnets for this story. Enterprising journalists demonstrated that, in spite of Morrison's protestations, Stewart managed to insinuate specifically pro-QAnon language into formal speeches the PM gave in front of Parliament, including this clip which discusses Morrison's speech apologizing on the government's behalf to abuse victims.
2: I find it deeply offensive that there would be any suggestion that I would have any involvement or support for such a dangerous organisation. I clearly do not.
15: But last night's Four Corners program documented a deeply troubling trail of text messages which raised the possibility Tim Stewart was able to get the Prime Minister, probably unknowingly, to include a hidden message to cult supporters in his apology to victims of sexual abuse in 2018.
12: The crimes of ritual sexual abuse happened in schools, churches, youth groups, Scout troops, orphanages, foster homes.
15: It is the term ritual that has created the controversy and why the Prime Minister used it. The use of the phrase ritual sex abuse would have been taken as validation of the conspiracy theory by QAnon followers because it's a a person in authority using this phrase which appears to directly reference
3: the conspiracy theory.
15: Four Corners last night documented a series of text messages from Tim Stewart referring to his attempts to get the PM to mention ritual abuse ahead of the speech.
12: An army of victims and therapists would specifically love it if Scott's apology referenced ritual abuse victims. This exact wording is a key phrase for victims. Think of this like a code that sends a direct and clear message that they have been heard by Scott specifically.
0: It's not clear to this Aussie political dilettante whether the QAnon story played a pivotal role in Morrison's eventual defeat at the hands of current PM Anthony Albanese. The post-election news reports from last year indicate the environment was the number one thing on voters' minds, plus people seem to have soured on Morrison's self-described bulldozer approach to managing the government. And even if scandal generally was a factor, there were other scandals that the QAnon fiasco had to contend with in terms of importance including a weird story where it turned out Morrison had assigned himself to five key positions in his own cabinet. This is in addition to his prime minister role, and he did it without telling anyone. There was also something called the robo-debt scandal in which Morrison and other conservatives replaced welfare investigators with an automated system that assumed recipients owed debts unless they could prove otherwise, and which turned out to be a great way of fucking over poor people. The government was forced to about face on this policy eventually and to repay 1.8 billion Australian dollar dues to those impacted. Plus, we think robo debt probably sounded amazing in attack ads voiced by Australians. Elena, you're up.
11: Seriously, I will send honeydew melon pickled in maple syrup directly to your house as retribution for this one. Crikey, mate! This robo-debt Wallamaloo means I can hardly afford Vegemite. Or shrimps for my Barbie. Let's vote this bastard out before it all goes tits up. Paid for by Australians for poorly accented self-parody.
0: Moving on, we take a brief stop in the UK, where, honestly, I was surprised to learn that nobody seems to think that QAnon and Brexit are very closely connected.
11: Why would you think that?
0: Oh, it's just at this point I tend to think that Q is going to either spawn or support any dumb idea that anyone ever has, and as James O'Brien, a radio host I'm about to quote a second time in this series, has noted, Brexit is the only time a populace has imposed economic sanctions on itself. So I think it definitely qualifies as dumb enough for Q. But no dice, there doesn't seem to be any significant Brexit-Q overlap. This does not, however, mean that Q has not made inroads into Britain. Far from it. And as we've seen with other non-U.S. QAnon, at this point, it doesn't seem to have that much to do with either Trump or QDrops themselves, as this Washington Post report notes.
5: The relationship between American QAnon and British QAnon is really interesting. At first, it kind of followed the similar pattern of Trump fighting the deep state, and it felt almost kind of like a copy. Over lockdown, it's really shifted. It's become much more rooted, I would say, in British culture, um, I sometimes even say, you know, it's got a bit more of a British flavour now.
0: It's intriguing that observers point out the non-partisan nature of Q in Britain. As the piece notes, the closest thing that Britain has to Trump, that is, recently ousted and disgraced Prime Minister Boris Johnson, is not considered a Trump-like hero and messiah by UK Q
5: adherents. I would say the most significant difference is how non-partisan it seems to be. It really doesn't feel like it's connected to any kind of political party. It's not as if QAnon in the UK all thinks that, you know, Boris Johnson is secretly uh, working behind the scenes to stop the, the deep state or anything like that. In fact, he's, you know, really heavily villainized. I don't think there's any UK politician that they like don't view with mistrust.
13: But what is
0: familiar about British Q is the way that it connects anti-vaccine activists and vague save-the-children sentiments into a sort of bangers-and-mash of conspiracy overlap.
11: It's not possible even you think that was a good metaphor.
0: That's a lie, Elena. I mean, I I don't believe it's a good metaphor, but it's possible I would think that. Don't be small-minded. I might turn out to be real, real dumb.
11: Got it. My backup assumption should be that you're stupid. That probably makes this job easier.
0: I would assume.
5: Over the course of the pandemic, Britain had intense and prolonged lockdowns which lasted many months and were meant to curb a devastating death rate. Anti-lockdown demonstrators have gathered each month in order to protest these restrictions. These demonstrations have brought together many different types of people. Not everyone at these rallies is there because they see themselves as a devoted follower of QAnon. But the marches do draw many people who carry QAnon-related signs and share QAnon memes online. These marches also draw many people, and particularly women, under the banner of Save the Children.
0: But regardless, QAnon definitely has its claws in enough people in the UK to be worrying. And as I just promised, here's one of my favorite broadcasters, radio host James O'Brien, wondering aloud how properly to handle a situation where you have to report on insanity simply because enough people believe it a scenario that U.S. journalists
16: have only too much familiarity with in Liverpool. Hello, James. Everywhere I go, and a lot of people that I meet are talking about QAnon, child trafficking, child abuse, and the pandemic being used against us. Some even believe the virus is fake, but nobody in the media seems to be addressing any of the above subject. I kind of get that the reply to the question is that none of it's true, it's all nonsense and doesn't deserve our time, yet everyone is still talking about it, and its absence from mainstream media, in my opinion, just fans the flames of these stories. Maybe you could speak of this subject today at 12. Um, I bet my bottom dollar it will be very interesting listening. And there... I, I touched on this yesterday, didn't I? That, that there is... Once again, the, the, the problem of our ages in that he, both of these correspondents are right. This absolute nonsense is growing in both popularity and reach. And those of us in what you might call traditional media don't know what to do. I heard Radio 4 having a crack at the QAnon story not long ago. And I think they did a fairly good job. But how do you report nonsense? It's a, it's, it's a challenge for the ages. I mean, you know, failing to report nonsense properly explains why we got Brexit and Donald Trump. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this still don't recognise that, that they they were bad things, particularly with regard to Brexit. I think you'd have to be putting in quite a shift to cling to the notion that Donald Trump isn't an utterly depraved disaster. And, and yet you have this sort of continuing confusion about how you report nonsense. It's a bit like right at the beginning of the uh, crisis when I told you a number of mates of mine from back in the day were getting in touch to ask about phone masks and and 5G because uh, exactly as those two correspondents just suggested because the kind of people that they were seeing talking it up were not the kind of people that that actually wore tinfoil hats and and sort of walked around in eight pairs of socks because they were frightened of some unknown toe-eating monster. Do you you, you know what I mean? But then, of course, you've got the fellow who thinks the Queen's a lizard enjoying a bit of a boost in popularity as well. I do not know is the easy way of saying it. I do not know how to report things that are believed but also complete pants. Uh, Vaccines would be perhaps the the, the earliest example of that. Or, Or climate change. But this is where it's led us, to a place where significant numbers of people believe demonstrable underpants. And people like me, who do this for a living, and I'm not alone, haven't really got a clue how to handle it.
0: Okay. That takes care of dear old Blighty. What about some place that seems to have its head on straight now, but maybe within living memory had a really bad time of it when a bunch of conspiracist lunatics took over their government and did some naughty shit?
11: You're alluding to Germany, aren't you?
0: Well, Elena, I'll say this. I've been to Germany several times, and I love the place and the people. And I don't think there's any group of humans on Earth who have done more to come to grips with their nation's horrendous past crimes than Germans have. But let's all admit that while U.S. QAnon is frightening, the idea of QAnon taking root in Germany has maybe some extra fear attached to it due to previous unpleasantness.
11: Oh, you're worried about QAnon Hitler, aren't you?
0: I mean, I'm not worried about it, but even the outside possibility sounds fairly shitty. We can all agree on that. Now again, I think the Germans are an amazing people who at this point have a really great head on their collective shoulders, but as our longtime and beloved listener Oli Hansen was quick to point out, the hard-right conspiracy theorists of Germany are only too happy to jump on board with QAnon.
11: Wait, isn't Mr. Hansen Danish? Yes. So why is he weighing in on Q's doings in Deutschland?
0: I'm going to say that little occupation in the 1940s makes it legit for any Dane to keep close tabs on German right-wingers for the next, let's say, 500 years. Sound fair? Anyway, it's not like Oli was making shit up about the German right-wing. They're definitely very comfortable with the same sort of bullshit that our domestic hard-right Looney Tunes tend to embrace, including, of course, a hearty helping of anti-Semitism. But since these are the folks who are helping to spread Q in Germany, let's take a closer look. Our first thread concerns the Reichsberger movement, a group that rejects the modern German state, denies it has any legitimacy, and insists that the borders of the real Reich...
11: Yeah, nobody claiming they're bringing back a Reich is going to attract many fans outside of actual Nazis, are they?
0: They are not. But to continue, they maintain the proper borders of their Reich are the much larger borders the German Empire had in 1932 or... 1871, depending on who you're talking to, either of which would carve significant chunks out of modern nation states bordering Germany. Here's how the economist explained the movement.
11: The so called Reichsberger are convinced that the Federal Republic of Germany, FRG, does not exist. In its place, the old German Empire endures, which in their telling was never properly abolished and persists in the borders of either 1871 or 1937. There are nearly as many lines of pseudo-legal reasoning as adherents. One rests on the fact that the Allies never signed a peace treaty with Germany after the Second World War. Another cites selectively from a decision by Germany's Supreme Court in 1973 regarding an agreement between West and East Germany. The upshot, say Reichsberger, is that the Federal Republic is really a limited liability company based in Frankfurt and controlled by a Jewish world government based in America.
0: Longtime listeners will recognize this hogwash as very similar to the worldview promulgated in the U.S. by sovereign citizens, who similarly claim that the U.S. was replaced with a for-profit corporation over a century ago among a wide range of other risible allegations. And it turns out the Reichsburgers come to their conclusions the same way our sovereigns do, deliberately selective misreadings of certain court documents and treaties that appear to buttress their claims, while ignoring wholesale the mountains of similar legal treatises that prove they're full of shit.
11: From what we can glean, these guys are looked down upon even by Germany's modern-day neo-Nazis in spite of the two groups' shared anti-Semitism.
0: The other German group we have to mention here is the so called Querdenken movement.
11: We know it looks like a reference to QAnon, but it actually translates to lateral thinking movement, which, yeah, their thinking is pretty lateral and stupid.
0: The Querdenken folks were at the forefront of the anti vax COVID lockdown protests in Germany, including one in late August of 2020, where noted anti vax activist, current presidential candidate, and Cheryl Hines embarrassment, RFK Jr., was a featured speaker. But, of course, the Kordinkan movement doesn't have to rely solely on imported conspiracy theorist talent like Kennedy. They've also developed their own. Weiss reported starting in 2020 on a lawyer named Reiner Fulmich, I'm almost certainly pronouncing that wrong, who took it upon himself to form the corona Alschuss. You're just going to have to pardon all of my pronunciation in this section.
11: That is the Corona Committee.
0: To investigate the supposed crimes that a wide variety of governments and corporations have supposedly committed against the people of the world since the COVID plague hit. His investigations have since led him to file a number of lawsuits, including, vice notes, one that involved Queen Elizabeth II.
11: That crafty criminal managed to evade the scales of justice by dropping dead, but oh, he'll make the other miscreants pay.
0: All of this is setting the stage for something Fulmich describes as Nuremberg 2.0, named after the famous trials in which the leaders of the Nazi Reich were sentenced, frequently to death, for their crimes against humanity.
11: The only difference between the original and Fulmich's version, of course, being that those he wants to put on trial this time are dedicated doctors and politicians who worked diligently, albeit fallibly like any other human, to try to protect their fellow citizens from a rapidly mutating, never-before-seen virus, to minimize deaths and horrific health outcomes. So, you know, exactly like Nazis. What an asshole.
0: What's surprising to people who knew this guy before his recent star turn as a spittle-flecked conspiracy loon is that he was a legitimate lawyer who had filed corporate fraud cases against Volkswagen, Deutsche Bank, and others.
11: And understand, these weren't silly, easily dismissible sovereign citizen-style lawsuits, but rather genuine cases alleging fraud for which there was actual evidence.
0: A different Vice video on the phenomenon of celebrity-led German anti-COVID, anti-vax movements covered another prominent Deutschlander who also abandoned a thriving career – to instead yell in public about COVID cover-ups and other nonsense.
8: Every day we hear about COVID and we have empty um, hospitals here and nobody's sick. They try to push away our human rights and democracy. That's what I see.
17: Before COVID-19, Hildman had one of the few jobs relatively insulated from the lockdown. He was a best-selling cookbook author and celebrity vegan chef.
8: I transformed myself by developing recipes where you use these healthy ingredients.
17: Over the course of the pandemic, Hildman's views on animal welfare and opposition to corporate farming have morphed into something extreme. Like many people who believe a small, powerful elite control the world, anti-Semitic fantasies are never far away.
8: For 20 years I've been an animal rights activist. I found out that the same um, industries are my new enemies when it comes to Covid because they are behind it and it's the agenda of the New World Order. They want to depopulate the whole planet. They want to kill 7 billion people by injection and they want to enslave the remaining 500 million people and control them with brain chips. And that's something I just had to stood up. —
17: You've been accused of making anti-Semitic remarks. — Yeah. — Do you stand by those? —
8: I never made anti-Semitic statements. I just talked about Rothschild and Rockefeller, which are criminals. They belong in prison.
17: Hiltman's repeated attacks on what he calls Zionists, such as suggesting they financed the Holocaust, have been clearly documented by the blog Volksverpetzer.
12: Attila Hildmann definitely is somebody who's a genuine believer and he's, who is so far into these theories that he kind of can't control himself anymore and who is, of course, hurting himself economically with that. He sold a lot of cooking books. Uh, he was on a lot of TV shows. And this, of course, will stop
0: That same video also closes the loop between the COVID protests in Germany, which were among the most significant in Europe, and Germany's embrace of Q.
17: The most unexpected part of this movement is the spreading growth of a group with distinctly American origins, QAnon.
12: QAnon conspiracy allegations are very, very emotional, in that, of course, it's all about child abuse and ritual murder. And this kind of adds some spice to the rather dry things that are happening with COVID in Germany.
17: QAnon preaches the fiction that President Trump is battling a shadowy cabal of devil-worshipping pedophiles. An analysis of QAnon platforms suggests Germany may have the highest number of believers outside the US, about 200,000. QAnon theories don't just add to a dangerous landscape of disinformation. For many, they also have a personal cost. What do your friends and family think about QAnon? I have
8: more and more friends now, but before that, I have lost my family and all, friend, all of my friends. And my, my whole church congregation I have lost because of the truth.
11: Okay there, buddy, but I feel like you mentioned those Reichsburger folks and then just kind of dropped them in favor of the Querdanken people, the lawyer and the chef, and how that ties back to QAnon. You going to remind us why we needed to hear about the German sovereign citizen equivalents?
2: Well,
0: I mean, the obvious answer is that many Reichsburgers slot right into Q and COVID conspiracy beliefs. But the other reason is because I wanted to remind you that the Reichsbürger got theyself in some real hot water at the end of 2022. Next,
5: police have made 25 arrests against members of a far-right terror group suspected of planning an attack on Parliament. More than 3,000 officers took part in early morning raids. Let's go live to Berlin. We can speak to our correspondent, Damian McGuinness. Yeah, well,
12: this is the largest anti-terror raid uh, Germany's ever known, Lula. So what we're talking about, 3,000 officers nationwide, uh, dozens of raids, including in army barracks. And that's because this is a far-right uh, group, known as Reichsburger, and uh, literally translated citizens of the Reich. And what they believe in, they don't, they want to undermine the modern German state. They want to overthrow the government and they want to found a state based on the German empire or Reich from 1871. Some of the people involved in this movement, some of the people arrested, the 25 people arrested, uh, were former officers, former soldiers. One of them was a former member of the National Parliament here in Berlin. Uh, She was working as a judge until she was arrested. Uh, There was also a minor aristocrat who was thought to be the ringleader of the this, this, this movement has some quite high-profile figures, uh, some of whom are armed, some of whom have access to weapons, and that's why it's being taken incredibly seriously.
11: And as the BBC reporter goes on to note, all of this weird stuff is very closely intertwined in Germany today. Yeah, it is
12: interesting. There are links to the US conspiracy movement QAnon. Uh, this though, this movement, the Reichsbürger movement, the citizens of the Reich movement, goes back to the 80s. So this this has been going for decades. We have times in Germany where they seem to be more active, other times when they seem to be less active. What we've seen though, over the last few years, and particularly during the pandemic, is that all sorts of different groups, very disparate groups, including anti-vaxxers, Covid deniers, far-right extremists, uh, all coalescing around this Reichsbürger movement in a way, really, to, to say that the German state is not legitimate. And I think there are links to the US, this idea of a deep state, what the people of this movement talk about. They say that Germany isn't a real country. Modern Germany is, in fact, a company, a firm, they call it, that's run by the US or by the Allies. And they say that the real Germany is the one that was before the First World War, and that's what they want to get back to. They don't recognise the German state. These people refuse to pay taxes. Regularly, you have shootouts with police in, in houses uh, in some parts of Germany. So this is something that does ebb and flow. But I think the fact that there's been so much going on in the US connected to certain conspiracy theories and particularly linked to the pandemic and you know, a a small but radical movement within Germany of people who say that the vaccine is the problem and not Covid itself and even though these groups are very small and very fringe, some of them are quite radical and what we're seeing, according to police today and certainly according to what we've seen over the last few years, is that some of these people are prepared to use violence to do what they think is the right thing which they, they believe they want to overthrow the German state they just don't believe in the legitimacy of modern Germany. That's why they're seen as such a danger. There's more QAnon in the rest of the world as well, but it's time for us to come home
0: to review the state of Q and attendant conspiracies like Stop the Steal, to see how they're changing, how they're staying the same, and to hopefully get a glimpse into what the future of our most insane homegrown political conspiracy theory will look like.
11: In other words, we have finally reached the home stretch of the Q series. Key
0: wrecked. Now, let's take a brief moment, while we're getting our bearings, to touch on one of the most popular Q-related, real-world crimes of the past few years, the decades-long sex trafficking and child exploitation ring centered around Jeffrey Epstein.
11: We don't believe any of you need much of a refresher on this topic. But Epstein, of course, is the financier and friend of the powerful, including both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, who had managed for decades to avoid facing serious charges relating to his extensive, ongoing habit of soliciting girls as young as 14 in both Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands for whatever sex act suited his repulsive fancy. He was brought up on charges and received a slap-on-the-wrist pseudo-punishment for these crimes in the 2000s. The leniency of that punishment was no doubt thanks to Epstein's wealth and influential friendships and, perhaps, because some involved in the prosecution might have worried about his potential to reveal some very unflattering secrets about those influential, powerful friends. Finally, more than a decade later, he was on the verge of facing real prosecution for his many Many obvious misdeeds when he was found hanging by his neck in the Manhattan jail cell where he was being held until trial.
0: Yes, the apparent fact that Epstein had managed to kill himself despite having previously attempted suicide by similar means, supposedly being on suicide watch and therefore regularly checked on by guards, and given that the cameras outside his cell during his first suicide attempts a few weeks before his death apparently had their footage accidentally erased when being handled by the FBI and that everyone, as Elena just noted, assumed he had plenty of dirt on the wide range of influential and famous politicians, celebrities, and even royals like the disgraced Prince Andrew, that he could trade away for a lenient sentence. All of this made many, even your level-headed and conspiracy-averse host, suspect that something might not have been on the up-and-up about this particular piece of shit taking the easy way out in his cell. Which is why, back in our original coverage of this incident, we said we would be eagerly awaiting the investigations that would no doubt follow this very suspicious story. In the intervening years, those investigations have largely concluded, and some other stuff has happened that bears on the conspiracy theory angle. So let's take a quick look at what we didn't know then. First, it seems clear that Epstein, whether he killed himself or not, was unquestionably suicidally depressed. No one outside of the QAnon true believers and maybe Tucker Carlson, wants to argue that the first suicide attempt was some sort of botched initial effort to silence Epstein, a version of events that would require the victim himself to have stayed mum about his own violent attempted murder until the same malevolent forces fixed their mistake two weeks later. If we can all agree that he tried to kill himself at least once, and again, there's no reason not to believe that, then we could acknowledge that this scumbag had, in his very recent past, concluded that his remaining life wasn't much worth living
11: a conclusion that we would have trouble finding fault with.
0: Well, Elena, we said it's an interesting conspiracy theory. Not that the death of Epstein was a great loss. Or a loss of any kind. Fuck that guy. Glad he's dead. On to the second point. The investigations turned up plenty of very run-of-the-mill dereliction of duty on the part of the guards who were tasked with keeping Epstein's body and soul together, including dorking around on the internet instead of making their scheduled every-half-hour checks on Epstein and the others under their charge. And failing to notice little-tells, like Epstein's leaving a scheduled meeting with his lawyers to call his mother, who had been dead for more than a decade in 2019.
11: And that shitty work ethic, combined with other contributing factors like staffing shortages at the Bureau of Prisons,
0: made this sort of scenario not just possible, but possibly inevitable. There are other interesting details the AP reported on a few months ago, including that in the aftermath of the incident, the Bureau of Prisons was more concerned with PR spin that would keep them from looking too bad than they were with even informing the prosecutors of what had happened.
11: That report also conveys the weird, gross, deeply sad fact that Epstein had apparently reached out to his fellow sexual abuse monster and prisoner, Larry Nassar. The guy who molested hundreds of young, trusting athletes in his role as team doctor for U.S. women's gymnastics. And even that gymnast-groping piece of shit wasn't willing to talk to Epstein, returning the handwritten letter unopened.
0: Talking about this story makes our collective skin crawl. The point is, as is so often the case, the evidence doesn't seem to lean toward a deliberate conspiracy, but rather toward the all-too-common cause of so many fuck-ups. Human laziness plus incompetence. Okay, I hear some of you out there giving me side-eye. You think I'm not assigning this totally plausible, silence-the-well-connected perv-before-he-cuts-a-deal theory it's due. And I'll grant you that I tend to doubt grand conspiracies, perhaps to a fault. But there's one more trump card I have in my hand, one that it seems to me tilts the odds pretty hard in favor of Epstein's suicide being of the unassisted variety. And so I draw the Queen of Blackhearts, from my conspiracy debunking deck.
11: Wow, your metaphors are actually getting worse?
0: Namely, one Gislen Maxwell. Do all of you remember what the conspiracy theorists said when Ms. Maxwell, Epstein's former girlfriend, longtime companion, and apparent girl procurer, was finally arrested and brought up on charges?
11: If I recall correctly, they pretty universally asserted that she would meet a similar fate before she could ever be brought to trial.
0: Right. And if the conspiracy to assassinate Epstein was real, that would be the only outcome that could possibly make any sense. After all, if this mysterious cabal, whose members remain unidentified...
11: Though you can be pretty certain that Hillary Clinton factored into every one of these imagined schemes, can't you?
0: If Hillary and company had felt the need to shut Epstein up before he spilled the beans, then obviously they would have to do the same to his lady aide-de-camp, right? I mean, as was amply demonstrated at her trial, Maxwell was mingling with the rich and powerful, both at Epstein's side and on her own as a prominent socialite. And as the nauseating testimony of victims proved, she routinely prepared mid-teens girls for their roles as sexual servants to Epstein and his powerful friends, up to and including molesting them herself. And yet, there she is, in the jail cell, where she'll probably spend the next 20 years, still breathing, and without having traded her supposed secret knowledge for any kind of sentence reduction, almost as if she didn't have the secrets and evidence she would need in order to get a lighter sentence, meaning perhaps Epstein, too, didn't have the dirt,
11: or at least the receipts,
0: to trade for his freedom. And therefore, he came to believe his only way out was taking advantage of the shitty work ethic and short-handedness of his jailers to exit on his own terms before the wheels of justice ground him to a pulp. I admit, there's still a shadow of doubt lingering over the Epstein story, and it's conceivable that something else we don't know about happened.
11: After all, we're not talking a flat earth level of impossibility here.
0: Still, I currently don't see a good reason to believe that the presumed conspiracy actually happened. On the other hand, I'm often wrong so we'll see if anything else shakes out over the coming years. Now that we've dealt with pretty much the only story that actually makes the QAnon worldview sound vaguely plausible, let's get back to seeing how Q beliefs are continuing to fuck things up from sea to shining sea. Wait, what is that fast-moving orange blur I see in the distance, kicking up a cloud of dust?
11: What are you talking about? Oh, actually, yeah, I do see that. What is it?
7: Why,
10: it's... It's...
1: what? Was this really necessary? What? Sending an Uber driver in the orange car from the Dukes of Hassa television show to pick me up from the airport?
0: Oh, you mean the General Lee? Well, it seemed appropriate given my mid-season replacement analogy when Ms. Pegasus stepped in a few segments ago. See, back in the fifth season, actors Tom Wopat and John Schneider got into a pay dispute, and the producers...
11: I'm going to cut him off there, Cousin Dana. It's boring and you don't care. But I do appreciate that he covered the confederate battle flag on the top of this thing with I'm gonna guess that's the Danish flag?
1: That's it exactly. That flag is also known as the Dannebrog, which I'll have Jesuit know is the oldest national flag in the world and which legend says descended from heaven during a battle with the Estonians as a sign from God. Ha. Take that, Bitsy Ross. And Elena, thanks for cutting him short. He can drone on and 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 on on when he thinks he's being clever, can't he?
11: I would say you have no idea, but obviously that's not true.
1: Thanks for covering for me during my vacation from Jesuit minding duty. Did he behave?
0: Hey. I don't like the tone of this conversation. Oh,
11: you know how he is. He thinks he's getting one over on you, but really, he's pretty easy to keep in line.
0: I have never been so insulted in He l-
11: didn't make you do any accents, did he? Oh, yes. Oh, Jesuit, which accent? <sighs> Australian. But at least it wasn't Scottish. It could have been worse, and my revenge will be sweet. And maple-flavored.
1: Well, as always, it's lovely to see you. If you can slide in through the windows of this inexplicably welded shut doors of this ancient monstrosity, I'll make sure he pays for your return trip. Can do. Thanks so much
11: for standing in, Cousin Elena. No problem. It was a hoot and a holler. And Jesuit? Yes, ma'am? Don't make Cousin Dana mad, or you're going to have two of us to deal with.
0: Message received. And from the bottom of my heart, thanks so much to Elena Pegasus for her clutch sidekick work. I am almost certain I will impinge upon her for something similar in the future if she's still taking my calls.
11: Bye-bye, y'all.
1: Was the Dixie horn melody necessary?
0: I know. I know. But it's a well-known signature of that particular fictional vehicle, and I—
1: Never mind. Please skip it. Let's just get down to business. What did I miss?
0: A bunch missed month-long vacation, but we were starting to talk about the latest and greatest stupidity that QAnon beliefs had led its stalwarts to inflict on normal people. And I can't think of a better location to start with than the QAnon obsession with an unassuming Texas butterfly refuge.
1: Butterflies? I I was away just long enough to forget how stupid these stories are.
0: Welcome back, Dana.
13: If you're a Q and honor, you need something new to keep you interested as the months and years go by. No place is beyond suspicion, including butterfly sanctuaries, including the National Butterfly Center, a private nature preserve down in Texas's Rio Grande Valley. Marianne Wright is the executive director of this place that you go to see butterflies, the sanctuary for hundreds of butterfly species. It's also a frequent target of conspiracy theorists. And so in 2019, they filed a restraining order against Trump's construction project to put up a wall that would have cut the sanctuary in half. On January 21st, that executive director received a message from her son saying that two women were on their property and were demanding that her son open a gate so they could go see, quote, illegals crossing on rafts. The woman right later claimed that an affidavit said that they were a congressional candidate and a secret service agent. They were in fact a congressional candidate, Kimberly Lowe, who you can see a photo of right here, And Marianne Wright said immediately we knew what this was about. It was an echo and reiteration of the lies Steve Bannon's rebuild the wall campaign published and promoted against us for years. So before they thought that this butterfly sanctuary was like like the underground railroad for undocumented immigrants. Now they think it's a center for uh, child sex trafficking. I've been to that butterfly sanctuary and you know what I saw there? Butterflies. I didn't see any kids being sold. I saw a desert tortoise. I saw some cool birds and stuff, mostly butterflies. And that was pretty much it.
0: That's a pretty solid synopsis. But the New York Times back in February of 2022 laid out a more thorough, just as ridiculous outline of this scenario and how it happened. Briefly, you remember Trump's stupid border wall? I do indeed. And you remember how Mexico was going to pay for it? And then that didn't happen because obviously. But it was still very important to Trump that he build as much
2: Great border wall. Gonna be a very tall wall, very strong wall, very powerful wall. It's gonna be such a beautiful wall. It's gonna be so big. It's going to be so powerful. It's going to be as beautiful as a wall can be. I've gotta make it beautiful because maybe someday they'll name the wall the Trump wall. Who the hell knows?
0: As possible, and he did indeed get some movement there.
1: According to the BBC, by October 2020, nearly at the end of his term, Trump's efforts had yielded 350 miles of additional barriers built where existing structures were already in place, plus 15 miles of completely new, big, beautiful wall.
0: And without getting into the fact that this sort of wall is considered largely ineffectual by experts on immigration, since it does nothing to impact those who fly, drive, or otherwise enter the U.S. legally and just overstay their visas, and has no significant impact on the drug shipments that mostly cross through regulated border checkpoints along with billions of dollars' worth of other goods.
1: Oops. Too late. You got into it.
0: Yeah, but we're moving on, because we're less interested in the wall itself than in the fanaticism and grift that surrounded the wall project. Which, of course, means that now we have to mention Trump former advisor and walking nightmare fuel Steve Bannon – who, in addition to fomenting support for homegrown fascism, spent the Trump years raising funds to build more... Uh,
1: how did you put it, Dana? God damn it. Big, beautiful wall.
0: Yeah, he put together a nonprofit cleverly titled We Build the Wall, and built scared nanas and peepaws across this great land of ours of more than $25 million, based on assurances that their grandkids wouldn't have to have quinceañeras or some shit. And then he and his buddies pocketed so much of those funds that they were brought up on fraud charges.
1: President Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, had a court hearing today on the money laundering and fraud charges against him. Bannon is alleged to have siphoned a million dollars from a crowdfunding effort to build a wall along the US-Mexico border. According to prosecutors, he used that money to
5: cover personal expenses. Bannon has repeatedly called his arrest Trump uses this term all the time, so why why doesn't Bannon? Nothing more than a political witch hunt.
1: You may remember man of the people Bannon being arrested on those charges in 2020 while lounging on a 150-foot yacht owned by a Chinese billionaire.
11: Yeah.
0: Smash those globalist elites, Steve. Of course, Bannon would suffer no consequences, as he would be pardoned by the lame duck president right before Trump threw his Hail Mary coup attempt in the final seconds of the clock. And since then, Bannon has naturally gone right back to his job of spreading bullshit to hopefully confuse enough people that Trump might squeak through another win and really fuck things up.
1: This is all so bleak when you lay it out like that.
0: Indeed. But we said all of that just to explain this whole butterfly sanctuary thing. See, the refuge in question sits along the Texas-Mexico border, smack in the middle of some of the land where Trump first wanted to build and adjacent to private land where Bannon's we-build-the-wall farce wanted to erect some of its… oh, Dana, sorry, how did you say it? I just can't quite recall.
1: This is the last one. The last one. Big, beautiful wall.
0: I'm not going to make her do it again. Savor it, Straniacs. So over the years, since Trump first proposed his wall path through the Butterfly Sanctuary, the place has been subject to more or less constant online and in-person harassment from wall enthusiasts and Q-loons, including one Brian Colfage, one of Bannon's buddies, a veteran and promoter of mass childhood sex trafficking narratives, whom the New York Times story on this kerfuffle quoted thus.
1: During the wall funding campaign, Mr. Colfage repeatedly attacked the Butterfly Center on social media. Instead of enabling women and children to be sex trafficked like the butterfly sanctuary representatives, we are taking action. This is a war for control of the most powerful country. Read one post from his Twitter account in 2019.
0: This stupidity culminated with a visit by a Q-friendly congressional candidate who got into a physical altercation with the sanctuary's director after she and a fellow Q-nut were denied entry when they demanded to tour through the stretch of the Rio Grande that abuts the refuge's property. This led to temporary closure of the sanctuary, during which other absolutely self-assured, spittle-flecked buffoons, like this guy, railed against the unprecedented damage, the failure to build a
1: big, beautiful wall. Wait, you weren't going to make me say it again.
0: I didn't. I copy-pasted one of the earlier times I made you say it. Read the fine print on your contract, unicorn.
1: What contract? Six years ago, you mailed me a bar napkin where you had scrawled two checkboxes and the choices do lines from my show forever, or acknowledge you kick puppies, and then suddenly I was saying nonsense into a microphone.
0: Details, details. So this guy is so mad at the butterfly people, and of course, Sleepy Joe Biden, that in his February 2022 video, he actually tries to add a note of irony to his boiling, if poorly thought through, rage. Not that he's quite up to the task
9: down to Benson State Park to look at the end of the wall where Joe Biden stopped building the wall. And this place, the Butterfly Center, uh, they said they were afraid they had some credible threats that something was going to go on. So we came down here and we want to join our voices with the Butterfly Center and say we stand against the credible threats of the cartels uh, trafficking children through the Butterfly Center. And we demand, we call on Joe Biden to close this border down to protect the butterflies, because we all care about butterflies. I mean, you know, the children that are being sold, these shoes were from one of the children that was trafficked across. This wristband was from one of the children that was trafficked across smaller than my four year old daughter's arm. But what really matters to the Democrats are the butterflies. And so we unite with them. If that's what it's gonna, if that's what it's going to take to shut this border down, we unite with them and say, protect the butterflies, Joe, close down the border because we know you don't care about the kids.